Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Even as academics and alleged researchers, there's this way in which when we speak about racism, we want to separate racism from gender. And when we do that, we end up putting them back together, focusing almost exclusively on black female bodies. So we talk about intersectionality all the time. We need a race-gender analysis. But it seems that that race-gender analysis never places black men at the helm of victimization through things that we think are, are feminine, are, are female violences like rape, domestic violence, domestic homicide, any of these types of things, violence by intimates, you know. So when this happens, people just say, ah, well, isolated incident. Ah, well, not the basis of black male experience. But then when you go back through history and you start digging just a little bit deeper than what those introductory textbooks that you get in Black Studies or Africana Studies 101 or Women and Gender Studies 101 tell you, you say, wow, you have black men like Richard Wright, black men like Eldridge Cleaver, right, people like Hurden, all trying to tell you that the basis of black male fear, phobia, and brutality has a sexual and homoerotic basis. This is Fanon. Right, that every every Negrophobic white man, you know, thinks about performing, you know, thinks about receiving fellatio from the Negro. Right, so this this is well well on the minds of black men writing during periods of Jim Crow, racist repression in the South, and colonization, but it skips the bourgeois black academic because it doesn't fit with a kind of post civil rights notion of discrimination. Right, intersection. I was telling my class the other day, intersectionality only works if you assume that. The segregationist basis of racism has fallen away, and you get you can only get a discriminatory basis because you're talking about the ways in which identities play out in terms of recognition, and then how some people being recognized more than other people creates disparities, be it monetary, be it political, etc. But in a world where you're segregated because of your race, 
Your identity only only tells you the kinds of violence that have the propensity to accumulate around you. So it may be the case that if you're a black woman in Jim Crow, you're raped more often because that's the type of violence that white males in the South like to perpetuate against black women. That doesn't mean that black men aren't raped in the South. It just means that that's not the peculiar type of violence or the particular type of violence that they most often experience, right? And because we don't look at racism in that way as the as the articulation of various colonial and segregationist or Jim Crowish ideas, we can miss, completely miss the picture of this kind of brutality, despite the fact that this brutality happened over, all across the world within various colonies. So we have a kind of dishonesty and short remembering, right? Because you have to remember that when America is colonizing the world, we're at, we're at the turn of the 20th century, right? We're, we're only 60, 70 years out of that moment where people somehow became integrated, right? And we started ad- adapting in the 1970s or late 80s these ideas of intersectionality. So these are at best, you know, 20, 30 years old. So the question we would have to ask ourselves is how do theories that have just come about in the last 20 or 30 years do so much to reframe what we think is, is possible to bodies that we know have been existing, at least in the United States, in, in relationship to physical violence and sexual violence for at least the last two or three centuries? Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to read 300 years based on an innovation in the last 30. But nonetheless, that's what people do, and that's why they miss. That's why they erase. That's why they can't see this other component of racism, especially black male vulnerability. They just, you know, because under intersectionality, maleness has a privileged position. Now, post-intersectionality theories have certainly challenged that. You know, people like Matua, people like Darren Hutchinson, people like Angela Harris have certainly challenged that idea, right? Explain that black men uh, experience a kind of gendered racism and that police brutality is a great example of that kind of disproportionate um, disadvantage. Uh, and even, you know, Matula's piece I've talked about a few times, you know, where she's saying that once you really test for these alleged black male privileges, you can't really find them. At best, you'll talk about, you know, income disparities, but there's only a 4 to 6 percent or uh, six cent income disparity if you're, you know, not taking into consideration incarceration and zero employment. And that translates to about a little less than $3,000 a year. So if you're, if you're going to base the disparities between genders on a notion of $3,000 a year where that doesn't separate black men from black women in any substantial way because they live in the same neighborhood, same house, same danger, same violence, X, X, Y, and Z, then I really don't know what we're studying. You know, at some point we have to hold theories up to empirics. We have to go through and actually test what's going on. And in a world where we don't do that, we're kind of losing the point. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Tuesday, November 22nd, 2016. So I have been told uh, just quick reminder, uh, we will be here twice on Thursday. I suspect a lot of people uh, will not have to work that day. You'll be doing whatever people do uh, for the festivities, but we will be broadcasting. uh, The early broadcast will be here at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific to take advantage of the day. Uh, Paul, if I me, Grant will be here live from the United Kingdom. Uh, Good to have him back on the program. We'll talk about his piece. uh, Most African, why most African-Americans deserve a Trump presidency. That'll be the first program. And then the second broadcast, it's Thursday. So we always do workplace racism on Thursday. We don't take vacations from that. So tune in. We'll be looking forward uh, two days away. Uh, The audio clip you heard at the beginning, Dr. Tommy Curry. He's been on the program uh, numerous times over the years. uh, And congratulations to him. He was just 
uh, recommended uh, for an award based on his uh, outstanding scholarship that you got to hear a little bit of at the beginning of the program. Well earned job. Well done, Dr. Curry. Uh, But in that segment, he referenced our guest for today's broadcast. Uh, He's done which he's done quite a few times in terms of recommending other scholars uh, that we should check out, have on the program. Uh, But when he was talking about uh, intersectionality and how it applies to black males, uh, the assumption that you have uh, some sort of uh, privilege benefits as a black male in a system of patriarchy. uh, And then upon further review, Maybe that is not quite the case. Uh, our guest for today's program, uh, she's written about this quite a bit. Uh, we'll talk about some of her work, uh, including progressive black masculinities, uh, as well as a report she wrote in 2013. Multidimensionality is to masculinities what intersectionality is to feminism, uh, which gets to the core of a lot of these issues and exactly what some of Dr. Curry presented at the beginning. Uh, our guest for the evening, in addition uh, to the reports I just read and various other uh, articles, reports that she's published uh, through the years, uh, she is at the University at Buffalo. Uh, she is the Floyd H. and Hilda L. Hurst Faculty Scholar uh, at their School of Law. Real pleasure to have her on the program. Joining us live, our guest, Professor Athena Matua. Uh, are you with us? I'm with you. Good Outst- to be here. Thank you. Outstanding. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with us. Um, anything for our listeners? I'm sure this is some folks. This is their first time hearing from you. Anything that you think would be helpful to know about who you are, the work that you do? Ah, well, um, I'm a lawyer by training, um, and I'm a law professor. So I, I teach law, um, and my areas of expertise are probably more generally civil rights, but it, specifically, I'm a critical race scholar uh, and uh, also probably a feminist legal scholar. Um, and I dabble recently in my most recent work on the issues around class, you know, kind of looking at this particular um, neoliberal moment and how that and the different economic theories, et cetera, really intersect with both race uh, and gender. So I tend to look at kind of race, gender, and class in much of my recent work. Um, a lot of my masculinities work, and it's, it's been a while since I've done something on it. Uh, I started off with the um, Progressive Black Masculinities Project. Um, and I think I started out with that in part because I had these three sons. <laughs> and I was kind of really thinking they were young. And I was kind of thinking what kinds of experiences um, are they enduring and will they endure and, you know, will they have space to grow and flourish in our very kind of racist and also kind of gendered culture. Um, And so I worked on that project with a lot of other uh, prominent scholars, um, um, Mark Anthony Neal, Patricia Hill Collins, um, um, et cetera, to produce that book and then went off to really try to develop um, what Curry calls this post-intersectionality um, theory. Um, and some people call it a post-intersectionality theory. I uh, consider it just an extension um, of the theory in many ways. Um, and we were trying to really look at masculinities and masculinity kind of studies and theories and thinking about men and their experiences and how they live and how they uh, perform 
their masculinity really required, at least given the theories that were available at that time, really required us to go uh, a little bit beyond intersectionality, or at least it required me to go uh, beyond um, intersectionality, because intersectionality was a theory that at that point looked primarily at um, um, women and, and women of color, the intersection of kind of race and gender with gender really focusing on women. Um, and, and had a particular articulation that really came out of Morehouse at that time. Uh, that said, I think it's grown beyond that. But at that time, which said, okay, well, um, black men are privileged by race, are privileged, sorry, by gender and disadvantaged by race. That was the articulation. And when we looked into that, we found that that wasn't exactly true. And racial profiling really became um, our example of a situation that was kind of pervasive throughout our society, um, but one which happened primarily to black men, not to black women, not to the very bottom of the bottom when you talked about intersectional theory. Um, and so we then had to go back and kind of look at masculinity's uh, ideals and um, look at kind of cultural practices around men and around men of color um, and then try to talk about uh, kind of what was going on um, to men from this, you know, um, position of complexity, right? Their lives are complex. Um, their identities are multidimensional. Their, their identities are, um, are, are complicated <laughs> and they're not monolithic. And, um, and, and so we came up with this idea of uh, multidimensionality. Uh, to talk generally about identities, but specifically to talk about the intersection of of, of gender and race with the focus on men. So um, that's kind of where I went after progressive black masculinities, always coming back to that initial work. Hmm. Does, uh, does that help? <laughs> that helps a lot. I'm sure we'll have more questions, listeners, myself, uh, as we proceed. But that's a great opening uh, for listeners who have not seen you. Uh, you can go to her faculty page uh, at the University at Buffalo. You are a black female. Is that correct? Yes. Right on. Yeah. Uh, this program, uh, Context of White Supremacy, I have unfortunately concluded that we are in a global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I use those two terms, racism, white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use mm -hmm. is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think such a system exists? Do you think that's an accurate definition? Um, yes, that system um, definitely exists. <laughs> um, and it is a global system. It was all, it was a global system from the beginning. I use a slightly uh, um, different uh, definition, but, but, but it gets at the same sort of idea. And I'm trying to um, think about it. I think about white supremacy as being um, ultimately about um, um, a system whereby whites primarily, that works in favor of whites, to maintain its monopoly over um, resources, 
um, this nation's resources and other nations' resources, opportunities, levers of power, policies, and empathetic concern. It's a system that is about kind of grabbing the resources uh, in the nation, in the world, primarily for, for uh, the use by white people, um, and particularly white elites. That's kind of how I come at it. And what that means is that you have to subjugate everybody else. Um, and they've de- developed elaborate um, systems and elaborate cultural beliefs to justify why they should own and control the world's resources and why everybody else should not. So blacks are this and Latinos are that and Asian Americans are something other. Um, That sort of thing and huge kind of uh, ideologies about what those people are, uh, uh, which justifies them as the superior race, monopolizing all of these uh, resources and trying to maintain those resources. So the uh, Trump election is really about um, a, a move to try to maintain control, maintain the monopoly over these resources, over power, over uh, policy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So very similar, I think, but the motivation might be a little bit different, I think. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, I wanted to, uh, before I get, because I definitely want to get some of your thoughts on the election to touch more on that, but um, Mm -hmm. we have been talking quite a bit, it seems for quite a long time uh, about Ken Thompson, a uh, former prosecutor mm-hmm. uh, in Brooklyn, New York, you as a legal scholar in the New York area, I was you know, very eager to hear your opinion uh, on his tenure as a prosecutor in Brooklyn, uh, just your thoughts on what he accomplished. Well, you know what? I don't really um, know that much about him. You probably know more about him than I do. Um, I'm in Western New York, <laughs> in Buffalo, um, on the other side of the state. And so Buffalo has the feel more of the Midwest than it does in some ways of the East Coast. So very uh, kind of a different sort of politics. Um, and so my knowledge about kind of what's going on in the city and the different personalities is limited. Um, but what I do know about him from rep- uh, from kind of reputation is simply that um, you know, he went into the uh, to the office as as DA with an idea to try to um, weed out um, the um, inequalities in the criminal justice system. That he was interested in establishing some sort of racial equality. That's a really big goal when you talk about the criminal justice system, which is kind of corrupt from beginning to end, uh, from from the from the bottom up all the way up to the top. Um, and so he went in there really trying to think about fairness um, and how to um, use his position and that office in a way to promote a notion of equal justice. Um, And so that's what I know of him. So he did that in a couple of different ways. One, he stopped the, um, he really stopped trying to um, have um, um, the, um, what do we call them, nonviolent offenders of certain drug laws. Um, he really tried to stop prosecuting those and um, leaving those, 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 that whole uh, group of people, mostly young people, um, mostly males, but increasingly women who get caught up in that 
um, uh, caught up in that system. He really tried to stop that practice. And that's a practice that at least some allege has really fueled mass incarceration. Um, So he had a real agenda uh, about that. And also, I guess the second thing that kind of occurs to me about his reputation, because I only know him by reputation, is his inclination to... um, um, to to go after police, um, uh, to to really um, take an interest in police brutality and really try to do something about that. And I think that's unusual. I think that when we look at prosecutors kind of around the um, country, they are increasingly coming under fire. We've always known that they were part of the problem when we talk about police brutality. We always knew they were part of the problem. When we talk about mass incarceration, we knew they were part of the problem. Um, we know that lots of studies been done on it, that the incentives um, in place really encourage prosecutors to one, on the one hand, deal with mass incarceration, to turn bodies out through plea bar- bargaining. Um, and in terms of police brutality, prosecutors work with the police and they work closely with the police. And so even uh, where you have some sort of an egregious crime, um, they are reluctant to bring those cases. And even when they bring them, juries are reluctant to convict, uh, to convict police um, who have been charged um, with brutality, even if we have it on film. <laughs> They're reluctant to do that. And so uh, Ken comes in with, some, I think, some concrete ideas, because he was a, also a federal prosecutor. He came in with some concrete ideas about how to disrupt those discretionary processes, how to disrupt those processes. Um, and what appeared to be fairly successful. Uh, but past that, I don't know any more than, uh, um, than others uh, who kind of are looking at him from afar. And my assumption is there are others who know him personally and have a, a, a much more grounded view of what he thought and, you know, what he did specifically in specific circumstances. So can't say that much about it. Um, but certainly a different kind of uh, personality in that kind of office where there are so many problems. Um, so it's unfortunate that we've lost them at such a young age. Um, oh, shame. It's sad. It's tragic, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I was, I appreciate you, you know, just, hey, Buffalo is not New York City. <laughs> you know, it's not, no. <laughs> not quite uh, in your immediate area and, you know, just kind of what you've read in the newspaper kind of thing or just heard in passing following the news and what have you. Not an expert. Definitely appreciate that. Um, I was I was asking uh, just I wasn't sure if you had followed him that closely or not, because a lot of our or I won't say a lot, but a, a significant number of our listeners were critical mm-hmm. of Ken Thompson because of his involvement in the Akai Gurley case, the black male who was shot and yeah. killed uh, at the towards the end of 2014. They did convict the officer, Peter Liang, who's an Asian American mm-hmm. uh, male, non-white male. Mm-hmm. He was convicted, but mm-hmm. he got no jail time. And Ken Thompson specifically, even though he did get the conviction, he recommended no jail time, uh, which jail time. And a lot of people were very upset about that and saying that, you know, this is just another example of a corrupt uh, justice system that does not value uh, black life. They were upset about that. And there was, in fact, there was even a, a report in the Village Voice this month uh, by Nick Pinto, where he was saying that there was a big case where there were a lot of exclusively, <laughs> exclusively black people were being arrested for gun charges by a group of officers. And the judges ultimately concluded that their testimony was not credible. Uh, he used the term incredible specifically. Mm-hmm. And Ken Thompson did not indict. His office had prosecuted uh, with some of these uh, 
these officers' testimony. There was criminal. It's a complicated thing, but the the end of it is there were Mm -hmm. a lot of black people exclusively being prosecuted for gun charges that are suspicious enough that judges ultimately concluded that they did not believe these officers and Ken Thompson's office didn't seem interested in reviewing these cases. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, uh, since you haven't checked it, I did just want to ask you kind of uh, got my attention. I have been focusing on the word discretion uh, in various mm-hmm. ways as it applies to racism, white supremacy. Uh, just as a legal mm-hmm. scholar, can you talk about the various ways that discretion ends up impacting the experience that black people have in with regards to law? Um, yeah, there are um, lots of literature out there on it, um, but what everybody knows, right? So oh, the, the, the first level of discretion is who you stop. Right, police have that discretion. Um, who you stop? Supposedly, they are not supposed to stop you unless they have some sort of probable cause. Uh, but probable cause can be anything. So you've got a broken tail light; they can stop you. They, right? uh, they get to the car window. Uh, they see something. They smell something, or they claim to see something or smell something. Then they have, you know, kind of more discretion to probe further. Um, we get caught up right there. We have, there's a lot more, um, um, a police stop us more often. Um, they frisk us more often. They, um, 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 outright search us more often, search our cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they have that kind of discretion and supposedly it is bounded by law. But when you look at a kind of a host of Supreme court cases, you find that those boundaries are very fluid, very fluid. Um, and it's easy to justify stopping a person, risking a person, search, searching a person. Um, uh, generally, the idea is as you become more intrusive in your search of a person and his or her property, um, you have to have kind of more reason um, uh, uh, for doing that. But in practice, it really just doesn't translate that. They have a lot more discretion, and the courts defer to them. They are the ones who have the knowledge. They have the experience. They know, so the court, this is uh, court talk, Supreme Court talk, in fact. Uh, they have the experience. Uh, we're trusting their judgment, and so they have a lot of discretion there. Uh, more specifically, um, when we talk about discretion, we really talk about it um, at the level of whether or not to prosecute a case. Um, and prosecutors have wide discretion um, about whether or not they should prosecute a case or not. And what we find is that where people of color are involved or black people are involved in particular, um, they often choose to pursue those cases a lot more often than they do um, um, when the um, offenders are white. Um, So just the discretion to bring the case or not. Um, And then you have... um, 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 and and, and there's two other little pieces in there that I just kind of want to throw in that relate, not, are not specifically about discretion, but certainly relate to it. And that is, um, if, 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 if a person has been brought into custody, custody or arrested, um, for something, there's a general practice about how you charge them still at the police. How, how do you charge them? And the practice has been, um, to, kind of throw everything at them. So a lot of times when you see uh, charges against uh, almost any uh, person of color, it's not usually one charge. It's usually three or four charges. 
um, there's a practice of overcharging um, um, offenders of certain laws or people who are just suspicious. Uh, the, the the police suspect that they have done something or they have done something minor. What you find is kind of a whole list of charges. Um, very problematic. And as a, a former prosecutor once once told me quite honestly, oh, yes, we just list uh, any number of charges, anything that's related that we think might stick. Um, and that becomes really problematic uh, if these things go to trial, but they also become very problematic um, if they are there is some sort of plea deal that is structured. Because then the prosecutors, who one have the discretion to bring a case or not, uh, but two in this instance have a, they have a whole list of charges um, um, with which to sort of pressure you. It's not sort of pressure to pressure you uh, to plead out a case. Uh, so uh, you were jaywalking, but, you know, a policeman approached you and then you're charged with jaywalking, obstruction of justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've got three or four charges. Then the prosecutor, who has the discretion to bring a case or not, has decided to bring a case. Um, and then they say, well, you've got these four charges. We can, in fact, um, if you go to trial, we're going to ask the court that you serve 15 years or we're going to try to get you on kind of all of these charges, much of which is kind of just garbage that the police kind of lined up a very typical practice uh, that the police uh, basically just kind of added to um, uh, to uh, some sort of encounter that they had with you. Um, and so then you're in a position where you, you, you may have done something wrong or you may be caught in some sort of weird circumstances. You have not kind of one charge, but three or four charges against you. You have a prosecutor who has decided, who has discretion to bring a case or not, can throw it out, but a lot of times does not. Um, and now the prosecution, uh, the prosecutor is saying, okay, um, unless you plead to these, this charge, or unless you plead to this set of circumstances, um, if you decide to go to trial, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, um, we're gonna try you on all of these charges, which will yield a sentence of 15 years. When if you take the plea, it's going to be two years. So a lot of a lot of discretion there, a lot of choices that prosecutors can make um, that becomes really problematic. And at every level of those, so the study suggests at every uh, level of that process and beyond, um, you've got a discretion and you've got discriminatory discretion. That is that when we look at um, what happens to, when we look at the numbers of people of color who get kind of ground up in that system as compared to whites, we find that we're disproportionately harmed by that discretion. Um, so so that's a, um, a real problem that the a study suggests exists throughout the criminal justice system. Um, I raised that issue with regard to something else. Can't remember what it was. But but that's the problem that we see in the criminal justice system. And it's just one of many. Wow. Uh, again, uh, from the University at Buffalo School of Law, Professor Athena Matua. Am I saying it correctly? Matua? Yeah. Matua. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes exactly. Just making sure. Mm -hmm. um, really, really appreciate that because I just I really my uh, my eyes light up or my ears every time I hear that word. I know WNYC in New York, they did a great report uh, last year talking about discretion, even from the, the side of prosecutors issues so eloquently laid out. Uh, they highlighted the fact that you have very, 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 very 
few black prosecutors in the U.S. to begin with. And so, so then you add right. all that discretion in there. There are very few black people are in the position to make these decisions. And they had a black female prosecutor on. And she talked about how there were all there were uh, they, she remembered a case. It was a white woman, really horrific child abuse case. They had, as you just said, they used discretion. They didn't charge her. This black female prosecutor mm-hmm. came in and said, why is she not being charged? This is a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. What is the issue? And she told mm-hmm. her boss, I think it's racism and different way. I think it's racism that this white woman is not being charged. If this was a black person, they would have been charged eons ago. We would have been done with this case. Mm-hmm. And she went ahead, prosecuted. Mm-hmm. She said she got a very, very easy conviction on this case. But that's another way that it uh, plays out. And I was even the case from this past weekend, they were talking about cannabis legalization in California, and they were saying that one of the things that was changed is that now if you are convicted multiple times in the state of California, if you're convicted multiple times of selling cannabis without a license, it's a misdemeanor. But after I think it's the third or fourth infraction, it becomes what they call a wobbler and they have the discretion to bump that up to a felony if you continue even now mm-hmm. in California post legalization. Uh, but the, the quick question that I wanted to ask, just your thoughts as a as a legal scholar, uh, what's your your legal recommendation or opinion on motorists when they're in a vehicle, they're stopped by an enforcement officer. The officer asks to search their vehicle without a warrant. Should what just your legal opinion? Should motorists consent to that search? Uh, no. No, and they should ask the uh, um, the um, officer you know, what they've been stopped for. Officer, what am I being stopped for? Um, and if they ask, you know, we'd like to search your vehicle, the answer should be, no, I don't think that's necessary. I don't really want to consent to your searching my vehicle. And after that, you have to start playing it by ear, All right? Um, yeah, continue the conversation. What am I stopped? Are you charging me with something? What have I done wrong? That sort of kind of conversation, but straight, short kind of answers. No, um, I do not want my vehicle searched. Um, why are you stopping me? Do you have probable cause for stopping me? Do you have probable cause for a search? Those are really complicated languages. There are all kinds of institutions now that are really coming up with a what I think is a nice script. And I'd have to look at those for both motorists and uh, pedestrians who are engaged, um, who are stopped by police. Um, the nice script of kind of what you say and how you say it. Most people are not going to say, do you have probable cause, <laughs> right? Uh, so, there, so there's better language. But you can certainly refuse to have your car searched, just like you can refuse to have your personhood searched, um, unless they're arresting you for something. Mm. Um, and so... Those in New York City actually have some great stuff, some um, um, uh, great scripts that are online and on the internet that were developed uh, in the first instance for stop and frisk, um, stop and frisk um, incidences, and they were produced for young people, so they're in simple language and are kind of direct and can kind of convey to the police officer that you have you have some sense of kind of what your rights are and kind of know what you're talking about. Um, but let's be clear. We've seen some horrific incidences where people have been um, cooperative, uh, who have been clear about um, what they were doing, and they still ended up 
um, killed or seriously injured. We have seen that. Um, and so um, in some ways, um, you're not guaranteed um, a successful encounter, kind of no matter what you you do, right? So we've seen these horrific videos where a man's on the ground who's a psychologist or psychiatrist with his hands up, and he was shot. We 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 hear we heard about the incident, I believe it was in Minnesota, where the gentleman says, you know, I have a license for a gun, and the officer instructs him to do something. He's reaching over to get his license, et cetera, and he is shot. Um, so I think we have to be really careful um, um, about how we engage police. And I do think we have to speak in kind of simple language. We have to be clear. We have to be calm. Because at, in, at the end of the day, we want to live to fight another day. Amen. Um, and, <laughs> you know, we want to live. Um, I have three sons. I want them to live to fight another day. Um, and so I think, um, and, and, and it's, sometimes that's hard for my sons to hear because it sounds, um, I mean, they think that's really unfair. Right. We all do. We think that's really unfair. Um, we think that uh, police officers are here to serve, um, um, to serve us. Now, that may or may not be true, but that's what we think. And that's what they should be here to do, to serve and protect. Um, and if we've engaged in some sort of violation, they should treat us with respect. Um, and if they in, in their engagement with us, if we you know, they ask us a question, we should answer. Uh, if they are asking to come into our home, to search our cars, and we refuse, they should respect that uh, unless they're arresting us. Um, but that's not always the case. Um, and, and, and that seems really unfair to at least my sons who um, then want to, who are very expressive. Um, and, and I say to them, well, um, here's a script. Be very clear, be very calm, be very certain about what you're doing, but also gauge the situation because you want to live to fight another day. Mm. Get his badge number, get his name, <laughs> and, you know, be calm and, you know, kind of go with the program, which is not great advice, but, which, which I think is great advice, uh, but is not satisfying to them when they think they are, they're, they're being dealt with in a way that's unfair and that's unjust. Mm. Um, but what do we do? This is where we live in. Absolutely. Got to be honest about that context of white supremacy. That is what we are addressing. And I just appreciate that as I get to my next question, because I uh, as you were giving your response, I wanted to almost say, uh, hang on a second, uh, Professor Matua, uh, as opposed to getting the legal scholar like you answering this as a legal sponsor. Let's get this answer as a black mother uh, to the consent. And you did that naturally within the question. Just absolutely brilliant. Um, you were talking about the, the being stopped and searched and the discretion that enforcement officials have going out and about and how that impacts uh, the system of racism, and white supremacy. Our president elect Donald Trump, uh, that was part of his campaign. Stop and frisk works. We need to do more of it uh, across the country to help address uh, the problem of crime. Um, you, in fact, in your 2011 speech uh, at the Latcrit. 14th annual conference, uh, this was 2011, uh, you were saying that there was a lot of rhetoric about building a wall, and you said uh, that what we're seeing is patriotism wrapped in whiteness. This is 2011, and now we have Donald Trump. What are your thoughts? Patriotism wrapped in whiteness. I didn't even remember that. <laughs> Great line. You should use it again. 
Five years ago. Okay. Um, well, that's what we have. I mean, I, I certainly see the election as an attempt to um, maintain white supremacy. I mean, I think you're absolutely correct about that. Uh, I think we've got an electorate that is um, really terrified about the browning of America. Um, we've got at least a, a significant part, not all, but a significant part of the electorate uh, that was um, um, appalled by the audacity of a black president. Um, and we have a, a significant segment of the electorate, or maybe a smaller segment, that is also under some economic distress. But we have been under economic distress for three or 400 years. So, um, but you have all of that there. And Donald Trump really appealed to all of that. He appealed to their fears about the browning of America. And how might you be able to keep America white, right? Uh, make it gray again, make it white again. Well, um, at least get rid of some of these brown bodies uh, who are undocumented. That's one way. Let's, not, let's stop this um, uh, immigration from certain countries or limit this immigration from certain countries and really bring in more Europeans because that's kind of what we like. Um, that is one way uh, that you do that. And it's not just um, uh, Mexican-Americans or Latinos more broadly. Um, there are a lot of... Um, African immigrants. There are a lot of, of course, Asian uh, uh, Asian immigrants. Um, there are, in fact, not just immigrants, but undocumented I immigrants. There used to be, and I assume there still are, a, a good population, at least in the Massachusetts area, of undocumented Irish immigrants. But they are not the target of this uh, type of thinking and this focus. The building of a wall is not about Canadians who are coming over and, and are undocumented. It's really about those Mexican-Americans and other folks like them, the, the browner folks who are coming from the South that these folks are finding so, so problematic. Um, so, yes, um, this wall idea strikes me as ridiculous, and I think Americans should be committed to um, 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 hindering that effort, but there certainly is a large segment of the population who are very concerned about this this uh, immigration, this immigration of Latinos into the country, which I think are contributing to the browning of America, at least from their perspective. Now, the reality is that, um, at least with regard to Mexican Americans, that and I'm talking about Americans in a much larger sense, both North and, 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 and South America, um, the immigration numbers are reversing. They're really low right now um, because the economy has been so um, poor that you don't have the large number of, of, of Mexican, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans coming into the United States at this point. So the immigration... Um, the immigration um, uh, flag waving is, is, is kind of false at this moment. So there were large numbers of, uh, you know, there was a large amount of immigration from uh, Mexico um, over a period of years, but that has since declined. Things are stagnant right now or even in reverse order, more leaving than coming. The numbers are in decline. And so a lot of this churning about immigration is not even real at this moment. There's not a flood of these brown people coming into the country at this moment. Um, but that was certainly a big issue among the segment of the population that voted for Donald Trump. Immigration was a big issue.
Um, I think there were other issues, but but that was a big one. What do you make there was so much uh, talk leading up to the election about, oh, my goodness, there's no way we can have uh, Donald Trump in office. The comments that he's made about women, uh, he's an open misogynist and a sexist in his treatment of uh, female journalists, even Fox's uh, Megyn Kelly and what have you. Uh, and then, according to numerous reports, 53 uh, percent of white women, white women voters uh, supported Donald Trump. What do you make of that seeming contradiction? Yeah, that's why the election is so disappointing. Not surprising. Not not surprising for I think those of us who um, recognize that um, America is a beautiful is really quite racist, right? That racism is pervasive in the United States, um, and that uh, white supremacy is the standing order. Right, is the political system. Racism is the foundation of the very found is the foundation of pillar of the society. Um, white supremacy is a foundation, uh, foundational pillar of the society, and racism is pervasive. So for some of us, it was not surprising. Um, that didn't stop me, one, from being really, really angry about that, um, that that's the way it, it turned out, that in fact, the election to me sent this message that some of us are unwelcomed. In fact, a lot of us are unwelcome and that a lot of us should be uncomfortable. So Muslims are not welcomed. Um, um, Latinos are not welcomed and they'll tolerate uh, other um, people of, of color, but only tolerate them. Um, so a very, um, you know, just a very kind of um, sad um, an enraging, I think, election. It sent a, a very t- a message of exclusion um, to to all of us, to kind of all people of color, even Native Americans. I think, um, with white women in particular, that is uh, that was also enraging, at least personally for me. Um, especially if you will recall, if you will recall, when Barack Obama was elected president, um, there was so much pandering and so much anger on the part of white women uh, that Hillary Clinton had lost to Barack Obama. Um, <clears throat> okay, so Barack Obama's out of the way. We're all supporting um, Hillary Clinton. I started off as a Sanders um, supporter myself and then moved uh, to a Hillary um, uh, supporter. Um, and and then you get these results, and what you find is kind of up and down, both the educational and uh, the economic um, levels, white women voted for Trump, kind of overwhelmingly. He did take educated white well, not educated, that's a bad phrase, but women with a college education. Uh, Hillary took those 51 to something like 48, but it was really close. And, and he took the majority of kind of white women um, 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 uh, Trump took the majority of white women um, in all the other kind of categories. My reaction, though, ultimately, is that white women have n- never been reliable allies, except for feminists and even white feminists, and even that is a struggle. That has always been a fight. There have always been internal fights when we talk about feminism um, and when you talk about uh, white feminism and feminism, uh, uh, black feminists, 
or other feminists of color. There's always been a struggle. There's always been a fight about white women kind of centering themselves, themselves and their experiences. Um, that has been a real problem in the feminist movement with those of us who consider ourselves feminists. Yet, I think that feminism has did a good job of changing or having a real impact on the culture. So, uh, you know, when I used to take my boys to Taekwondo, um, there were a lot of little girls in Taekwondo. Um, there are a lot of girls kind of across the races being educated and promoted. And I think that is really a tribute to feminism. Uh, but you will remember when we talk about uh, the early years of feminism uh, in the early 1900s, um, as soon as uh, we got history of this, so you know, as soon as uh, black men were given the right to vote, we saw the racism erupt among the, the white, um, 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 white feminists then. Uh, since then, it's just been a struggle. But I talk about three groups. I, I tend to talk about um, feminists, white feminists, white women, and then I usually talk about skanks. <laughs> wow. <is> terrible. <laughs> what a scholarly term. Wow. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> uh, it's, a terrible, it's, a, it's a terrible. That's a function of anger. Because what, I do what? think that they have always been unreliable. So we, we can go back and we can talk about the early 1900s and uh, white feminists kind of turn against uh, any kind of coalition that might have existed between um, uh, blacks and the uh, abolition movement and that sort of stuff and, and, and white women. They kind of turn on the dime when uh, black men are allowed to vote and, 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 and white women have to continue struggling or women in general have to keep uh, struggling for the vote. But we've seen it in, in, in recent times as well. So I can recall back when uh, California was voting on the uh, affirmative action and what proposition was that there were two of them one was 187 that might have been about can't remember uh but this um, they were voting on one of the propositions that had to do with affirmative action um and the um vote what was very interesting about the vote was that Something like 75% of Latinos voted in, in favor of, of affirmative action. Um, black people voted in favor of large, very large numbers of, um, for affirmative action. And even Asian Americans had voted in very high numbers for affirmative action. And we, when we looked at what was problematic in that election, it was really white women are the ones who had voted against affirmative action. Now, here we have a group of people who have benefited the most affirmative action. So we think about affirmative action really being designed to address the inequities that black people in particular uh, have faced in this society. But the, the overwhelming beneficiaries of that have not been black people. It has, it has been white women. Um, and so we come to one of these state votes, one of these referendums on affirmative action, um, and this might have, maybe it wasn't a state proposition, might have been a city uh, proposition, and the proposition, proposition goes down in defeat primarily because white women, the beneficiaries of it, the major beneficiaries, don't support it. Um, and so it seems to me we see this thing over and over again where white women, you know, even though they, we, we have these views and we get this message um, uh, that white women um, are more um, sympathetic toward anti-racist struggle, uh, that they are more um, sympathetic and in agreement with 
uh, economic policies that um, that try to address structural inequities uh, that result in poverty, more poverty for people of color than for whites, but poverty all around. We we hear this rhetoric about um, um, white women being um, doing something quite different from white men who kind of get written off perhaps unfairly, but large sections of them are really kind of in support of white supremacy, white male supremacy, white women doing something very different. But from my perspective, when we look at history, and I have to think about more examples, white women are not the most reliable allies that we have. Um, And I think that is for a lot of complicated reasons, but a lot of times we cannot count on them. And as we see in this election, we couldn't count on them again this time. There was all of this rhetoric about women in particular, but uh, that women generally, but white women in particular, supporting Hillary Clinton. And that just didn't pan out. Um, and it didn't pan out in the context of an election where all of those things that you talked about happened. Uh, you know, this is a man who um, insulted um, every other group out there, um, every other, and this is important, vulnerable group out there, undocumented immigrants, Muslims, Black folks, the disabled, you know, really just disregarded. Um, the humanity of the people that um, constitute these different groups. Um, and, 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 and white women abandon that. So, you know, from my perspective, we've got this racist, um, sexist um, uh, <laughs> um, person um, who is out there kind of flaming, uh, fanning the flames of of um, this uh, divisiveness and hatred. And these women support that. They, they, for whatever reason, there is a vote for um, oppression and discrimination and inequality. Whether, you know, sometimes they brush it off. We didn't think, we don't think, we think it'd be different, whatever. But we don't really have vote for this kind of racist, sexist, um, um, rhetoric and belief system, and they're nowhere to be found. Really, really problematic. Um, I think it's so very disappointed, but I'm not so sure they've ever been reliable allies. Uh, from our perspective, from the perspective of kind of anti-racism, um, I'm just not so sure they've been um, as a large group, not as individuals, as a group, if they've really been uh, good allies, if we look over the historical period. Um, and, then, and then there's this last group, I think, that really kind of, um, is really kind of opportunistic. Um, and I don't know how I'm really kind of separating them out, but that's really opportunistic. Um, and I see them, I guess, when I think of people like Fisher, now, Abigail Fisher. I um, mean, if you recall, she was the one who brought the suit um, in um, at the University of Texas, um, challenging their admissions policy, which had uh, a race-conscious component to it. Um, and uh, Abigail Fisher's a young people. I give all young people a pass. You know, I'm an educator. Um, and I think young people are our future. And so generally, when I thought of there's hope for them, <laughs> um, like their energy. But 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 she's an example of someone who I just think is opportunistic. Um, it will be interesting as she matures to see if she fights for anything 
while reaping the benefits of, on the one hand, white supremacy, and on the other, any advantage um, that is gained by other struggles. Um, and then, so not only reaping all of those benefits, but then kind of comes back and really challenges uh, systems because she personally didn't benefit. She, uh, you know, this is a, a system that's put in place to address inequities in the system. Um, and, um, and because she didn't get admitted, then she challenges those policies. It's not that those policies had some direct effect on her. Admissions is no one's entitled to be admitted to any place. And I've done admissions, right? And that is a complicated process where you're, you know, you've got lots of applications, you've got lots of people who are qualified. Um, and at some point you are looking at a bunch of different factors and um, admitting people. Not entitled, but she decides that um, she didn't gain admissions because of this policy because somebody else uh, gained admission and uh, because they were black or, or whatever. Um, and so that just, the opportunism of it all, I find very, very disturbing. Um, so those folks you really can't count on. Those are the ones I think I'm referring to as the skanks, although she's too young to really be who are. And that's a terrible thing to say. Uh, that's a product of anger. I shouldn't say that on the radio, uh, but I've written it, you know, kind of uh, white feminists, white women and skanks. Um, uh, this sort of thing. So anyway, the election, I think, in that regard was very, very disappointing for me as uh, as a woman and as a feminist. Um, and as, you know, when you think about Black women, and this was, a, you know, Hillary is a white woman. Um, 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 African-American women came out. We were her biggest supporters. We came out in the, at, at the level of, what, 93%, 92, 93% um, of us who voted, supported Hillary Clinton. And they didn't even support kind of one of their own who was addressing, not just that she was a woman, but she was actually addressing some of the things that I think feminists have been arguing for, that they have been advocating for, um, looking at kind of the lives of women and what they need in their uh, seasons and how the society is actually structured to limit their own potential. She was addressing some of those policies, and yet they voted for... Trump, who really had a message of hate and exclusion. Yeah. Not surprising, but disappointing. Mm. Adding that to my counter-racist lexicon, skank. <laughs> New term, moving forward. I will employ that liberally, uh, but I, I definitely... Don't think... do that. <laughs> I will... Don't do that. <laughs> I will cite Professor Matua. Moving forward, that will be my um... scholarly term. But I, I do, I definitely think that the 2016 presidential election, at least for me, this will be a watershed moment in terms of a referendum on white women uh, and their commitment in terms their priorities. I would put it that way in terms of what they prioritize. Uh, to me, this was a clear demonstration. <laughs> white supremacy is priority one. Everything else is a right. way distant second, third, wherever it else second. is on the list. And it's way, way back not even close um what's your opinion right. and, oh go ahead i'm sorry go ahead mm-hmm. okay and, and it's really interesting so you know and people are diagnosing this differently some folks have argued that uh the real problem is that hillary clinton uh, as a person and as a candidate did not address what they're arguing are were the economic issues that um uh 
working class women faced. Um, one, I'm not so sure that's accurate if you actually looked at her policies, but uh, they were certainly captivated. They certainly seem to have been captivated by uh, the Trump's rhetoric and, 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 and this rhetoric of exclusion. Others are have argued um, that, you know, um, white women still see kind of white men as their saviors. Um, and I think that really plays into your idea of, you know, so their priority is white supremacy. They're, they are white women. They are white. Um, and, and, and white, um, racism is pervasive and they are not excluded from that. Where I am more sympathetic is with regard to children, right? So one of the things that got discussed in this California example I was giving you, and I, I wish I had looked that one up, um, was that, um, these, that, that, um, white women, I think like, um, like all families, not just women, but families, you know, think about their children and think about their children's future. Um, and at the end of the day, that um, uh, those white women decided that they, you know, that affirmative action from their point of view had a negative effect on their children, that their children would not be, um, would not have the same access uh, uh, uh uh, that they wanted them to have if they really had to compete with uh, all of these other groups of color. Um, and so a little sympathetic about that, but, but, but that's all. But that's still about white privilege, isn't it? Mm. Still about monopolizing, monopolizing the resources for ourselves to the exclusion of others. We are the only ones entitled to a decent life. If there's some resources left over for the rest of you, fine. But uh, we're the ones who are entitled to that, and our children are entitled to that. So, problematic. Absolutely. I guess the the my assessment uh, in terms of young white children, I don't have that sympathy, I guess, or, or giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, number one, uh, we've had many whites on the program and I ask them, does it make logical sense given everything that has happened for centuries for victims of racism to give white people the benefit of the doubt uh, in any matters concerning mm -hmm. racism? And they've overwhelmingly said no. So I stick to that. But mm -hmm. with younger whites, I just I've concluded that uh, their white parents uh, mothers and fathers and grandpa, uh, grandpa and grandma and aunts and uncles, they all do a phenomenal job of transferring that racial inheritance about what is expected of you as a white man, as a white woman uh, in the society. And I've just I've seen too many illustrations that they understand that at a very young age uh and by the time they are i don't know exactly where but it's early it's i think it's much earlier than many non-white people think they understand very well uh what racism is uh what their role is going to be as a white woman as a white man uh and how they are supposed to think and treat black people uh i think they have a very oh. sophisticated <laughs> go ahead go ahead Oh, of course they do. Of course they do, without a doubt. So uh, all you have to do is pull out the white and black doll test, mm -hmm. right? And so when, when, when I <clears throat> listen to adults debate whether uh, racism exists, which has been the debate up until now, particularly during the um, Obama years, right? It's been this kind of uh, fake notion about post-racialism. 
um, and a uh, post-racial uh, society. Um, but I always simply responded, particularly to the adult, um, since I'm an educator, I actually make an argument and teach something different in the classroom because I think that young people can change and at the ages even of 20, 23, 25, that they are, um, this is a time, this is, one hopes you do it earlier than that, but this is a moment where they're really kind of grappling with some things and um, this is a time when you can really introduce critical thinking uh, along some very tough issues. And so I always hold out hope for them. But you're absolutely correct that um, when I'm talking to adults, I'll say, oh yes, our five-year-olds can tell us what we are teaching them. They may not be able to articulate that this is racism and this is what I'm being taught. But one of the things that that famous doll test that's now been repeated, I think CNN uh, redid um, re the test a couple of years ago, where they line up the white dolls and the black dolls and that sort of stuff. And then they bring in these different children, white children, black children, Latino children, and they ask them to choose who's the smartest, who's the um, uh, uh, who's the most beautiful, who's stupid, who, who's bad. Uh, our five-year-olds can tell us what we are teaching them. So yes, we get this very early. We start getting it at age two, if not before. By five, we know what the script is. Sit down any, you know, kind of group of five-year-olds of, of different races and they'll tell you. This is what, in my five years of life, I've learned about my society. So when I hear adults talking about debating this, I just, you know, I just have to kind of sit back and not really engage it because I think that if a five-year-old can get at you at 45, you know, debating whether it even exists, is willful, willful ignorance or willful blindness. Uh, to the realities of the society. This is what we teach our children, and they know it by five or six. My children knew it by five or six. They knew they were not the chosen ones. Mm -hmm. This is not hard stuff, not rocket science. So I agree with you. Uh, a white youth know their role. Um, and they certainly, so by the time I get them at 23, 24, they've known it since they were, you know, three, four, and five. It's deeply ingrained. Um, and part of uh, the part of the challenge, I think, in uh, when you're when you're teaching um, uh, um, teaching courses uh, about race or that touch on race, and you start talking about the social construction of race, and you start talking about the way it has divided, it, that is embedded in all of our institutions and embedded in our psyche. Part of what you're doing is revealing uh, that reality to them. Because not only have they learned the code, they've learned to be, um, to be blind to the, to, to, to the code, to the structure. And so you have to reveal it to them. You have to bring it out of them because they know it. Uh, so I have an exercise where, and I think a lot of educators use this exercise, where I put up all the, okay, you know, I put up on the board blacks, Native Americans, whites, middle class, poor, um, um, gay men or LGBTQ plus um, um, and put up those lists and I say, tell me the stereotypes about it. And they're reluctant at first because they don't really want to say it out loud. And I say, well, if you can't say it here, how are you ever going to engage it in the real world? Tell me what you, tell, tell me what you know. And before the hour is up, I have a board full of stereotypes. And then I turn around and I say, well, how do you know that? Where did it come from? I didn't tell you these. I didn't give it to you. I didn't say it. 
you made all of this stuff. So how do you know it? Where'd you get it from? Where does it come from? Um, and so it's the uh, process of revealing to them what they already know because they've known it all of their lives. Now, if you haven't thought about it before, if you didn't get some of it in junior high school, if you didn't get some of it in the high school, if you had that, uh, if you haven't started unappealing uh, un- this, this this piece of fruit uh, in college, let's do it now. Um, and, and then let's think about how we get this stuff, where it comes from, what it really is, and what um, are its goals and its modus operandi and how does it get embedded into our institutions and how does it get embedded into our psychic and then how do we, how do we, then what do we do about it, right? So I agree with you. That was a long explanation. I'm sorry to agree with you that, oh, yes, they, they know it. But I guess since I'm an educator, I just have not given up with, um, uh, given up on them at this point. And I think, um, and I think that's a good thing. And I think I see uh, a lot of promise in the youth, even though, let's be clear, in terms of white youth, Trump won that group, too. <laughs> mm. <laughs> let's be clear. Mm. <laughs> That's very important to keep that in mind as well, uh, in my yeah. opinion. Uh, context of white supremacy legal scholar uh, from University at Buffalo, uh, Professor Athena Matua. Uh, when you use the term privilege in a racial context, what do you mean when you say privilege? I... Um, let me give you an example in this election um, of privilege. So, and I gave this talk quite recently. Um, so, um, in the bubble that I live in, there um, was a lot of back and forth. Uh, the, the question was um, were the people who voted for Trump, are the people who voted for Trump racist? It was the question as how it got posed in a lot of different kinds of ways. And one of the responses I think that a lot of us got from um, white liberals, uh, from um, a lot of whom are our friends and allies, was that, well, some people wanted to, they weren't really racist, they, they really wanted to just shake things up. <laughs> And um, in fact, um, they are people who voted for Obama in the last election. And my response was, and I think a lot of our responses, but uh, my response was, hmm, well, that's kind of white privilege, you know, to vote for uh, Obama in the last election and, um, and then vote for um, this racist man this election. So Obama last election vote for uh, this is racist man. This man engaged in all of this um, 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 exclusive and mean-spirited rhetoric. Um, that's privilege. Because I don't think that Muslims, that um, uh, um, many Latinos, that many Black folks, thought they could really take that risk just to shake things up, you know? That's privilege. That's a privilege of, of all of that rhetoric being, you know, being not targeted uh, toward you. So nobody's threatening, threatening deportation of you. Nobody's threatening to have you go and register in some national registry. 
um, um, why? So they can put that yellow star on your chest. Uh, nobody is targeting you or your children. Your children aren't being routinely shot down in the streets. So you have the privilege of whiteness. You have the benefit of that. You're not the target of any of this stuff. So you can declare that you're not a racist and you voted for Obama last time, but you voted for Trump this time just because you wanted to shake things up. Well, we didn't have that luxury. We'd be much more pragmatic about that. Um, that's privilege. That's an example of privilege, of white privilege. Not to be the target of all of that kind of stuff. And to just kind of take the risk of voting for someone who has been very clear about what he thinks of all these other different groups, except yours, and what he's going to do um, um, in terms of excluding them from the society or promoting policies that will that are geared toward uh, subordinating them. So for us, the stop and frisk policy, a policy that um, lots of st- studies have shown in New York in particular, where it was um, you know, kind of official policy, uh, that it didn't work. It's a waste of resources. It alienated the community. The, you know, in terms of uh, stops, uh, African-Americans were stopped um, a great deal more often uh, than whites. And generally, they found nothing. I can't remember what the percentages were, but they found nothing. So they stopped and harassed, police stopped and harassed all of these people alienated all of these people with minimum or no return. Um, privilege not to have to, not to have to really be subject to that. That's the benefit of being white in a white supremacist society. Hmm. With, with the example that you provided, um, and I, I guess even, cause I do on the program, I prompt about in terms of examples, uh, in terms of just getting mm-hmm. like, uh, specific definitions. Um, I do prompt about that on the program because I've, I found that it can mm-hmm. be problematic sometimes when people substitute examples for definitions that you can sometimes have difficulty really grasping what the concept means. Uh, just do you have mm-hmm. a, a, like a concise, you know, this is what I mean when I say privilege, that's not an example. That's not an example. Oh, I thought that was a good example. Okay. Not a good example. Oh, it's, it is. I'm just, uh, just so that I can boil it down to, <laughs> yeah, to get so, like a definition. So how would I define uh, privilege? Right. Um, that's a tougher one. I should know that kind of by heart. Um, privilege is having the uh, white privilege, be male privilege or, or whatever. But but white privilege is having the um, benefits of um, domination, right? having access to the benefits uh, of domination. Um, that's a short and concise. Does that tell you anything, though? Access to the benefits of domination. For me, it does. It's very it's very helpful. Thank you for indulging me because I wanted to ask. Um, I've been to the White Privilege Conference. We've had Dr. Peggy McIntosh as a guest on this program and many others. Yes. yes. And uh, I mm-hmm. I question I questioned this at the at the White Privilege Conference. If what we're talking about is I mean, 
power, access to the benefits of domination, where we can decide as whites, we can decide we're going to use our quote unquote white privilege to put Donald Trump in the White House. So we're going to use uh, our white privilege to put, you know, policing laws uh, in place where we know we can already predict that black people Woo, whole generations of them are going, you know, greater confinement, mm-hmm. school to prison. We already know that these things are going to happen. If that's what we're talking about, in my view, it is mm-hmm. not the most accurate description. If that's what this is, calling that privilege, mm-hmm. to me, it very much makes it a much more passive thing. Uh, for example, we've had many of these whites when they've been on the program, they can give us endless lists of the types of privilege mm-hmm. they have as a white mm-hmm. woman or a white man. Endless mm-hmm. list. When I ask them, okay, right. pause, you've given us number 153 on the white privilege list. Can you give us one way that you have practiced racism the crickets come out every time. Nobody can even get number one on this is how I practice racism. And to me, that's the sort mm-hmm. of thing where I say you're not pretending you're lying because there's no way if mm-hmm. you're a white person and you've been on this planet for 20 years, you can't tell me a way that you've practiced racism. I just I think that in really, in my view, I'm, I'm sinister enough to think just using a logic that I think whites deliberately use terms like privilege or microaggressions, they use these terms to obfuscate. What we're talking about is domination, power, and terrorism to totally wage war on non-white people. That's what this boils down to when we're talking about these policies and how this plays out in life. I just, I don't think privilege is the most accurate term to describe if we're talking about dominating people, dominating in a hostile mm-hmm. manner, in an unjust manner. I don't think privilege is the best word mm-hmm. to articulate that. Does that make logical sense? Oh, absolutely. And you're not the first person who made that criticism. All right. Um, that uh, I, mean, I think that's exactly a, a correct. And privilege is really a legal term. You know that, right? It's a legal term. And what it meant was what it yeah meant, um, and I guess means in, in 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 some ways in the contemporary moment was that to have access to some benefits that others don't. That's what privilege meant in law. To have access to some benefits that others do not. To be privileged. Um, and yet. Um, I agree with, with you that we could use a uh, uh, a different word, a word that is more, uh, I think you're looking for a word that's more powerful. But I think that's what it means, having access to the benefits of, of dominance. Dominance. And how do you, do you dominate in a lot of different kinds of ways? Um, you can, there's physical dominance, there is uh, numerical dominance, um, you know, um, there's um, uh, 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 what you were, were kind of referring to is, you know, violence. Almost all domination is backed by violence, I think, right? Almost all domination, except numerical, right? You can have a majority um, and dominate kind of through a majority. And that might have a sort of, of violence, but it may not necessarily be backed by, by violence. But sure, we could use more powerful words. We can talk about white supremacy. We can talk about dominance. We can talk about oppression because all of those are at play here. And we can talk about violence, straight up violence, no qualifier, no anything, just violence, um, because that is what um, this system um, has used to maintain control over this territory, right? These are really colonial settlers, right? Uh, violence to um, both gain uh, control over this uh, um, uh, territory and maintain control over the territory and all of the people who are here. Yes. Yeah. Stronger words? Yes. Yeah. 
uh, white privilege is kind of a term of art and perhaps a past one. Uh, um, but you make that criticism. I take it. I think that and others have made it. It's almost a confusing term. Mm, wow. What, mm-hmm. uh, and this was a question that, uh, Dr. Curry, uh, was hoping that we could slip in. Uh, you talked a little bit at the beginning of the program, uh, about some of your earlier thoughts and conversations that you were having, uh, with regards to intersectionality, uh, and mm-hmm. whatever privileges black males might have on the basis of gender mm-hmm. and then being mm-hmm. mistreated as victims of racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to know, mm-hmm. can you kind of describe how maybe some of the shifts in your understanding or your, your thought, your view on this, uh, from where things started to where you are now? Okay. Um, uh, two different thoughts. So, remind the second thought is really about some of this later work that really talks about agency, and I want to get there. Um, but I want to start with um, uh, this this notion of male privilege. I, and I guess I would probably disagree with um, Dr. Curry a bit, although I couldn't give you concrete examples. I do think that black men do have access to uh, some limited form of male privilege. Um, um, that they benefit um, from male domination. And so uh, male domination, um, this the concept is, I think, very similar, that um, men as a group subordinate women as a group. It would be how I might start. Um, and, in the, and black men, uh, though uh, this is much more problematic and um, there are a lot of other intersecting factors and axes of power in how they exercise that privilege um, or the extent to which they can use that privilege. I do, that th- I do think they have male privilege. So um, I was listening to his quote in the beginning, and I, I thought about him. I had this argument with Derek Bell um, <laughs> over one of his... Um, uh, uh, narratives. I think it was probably the 27th year. He and I got in a really big argument about this. And yes, um, and, and Patricia O'Collins makes this, this, this point as well. She says, a lot of times what you see in terms of employment, and I'm going to go back to the employment context, in, in terms of employment, that, um, that you, you find a um, higher percentage of unemployment of, 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 among black men because Black women could always get a job as a domestic. So they, a lot of times, um, had jobs where a percentage of, of black men did not have jobs. Um, but their jobs were kind of on a lower rung. They were, uh, had lower wages. Um, they were often service jobs and that sort of stuff. I think we see that kind of throughout the society. So when I think about the legal profession, for the longest time, and I think that is shifting now some a bit, not sure, but but certainly at the time I was having this argument with Derek Bell, it was very clear, and I did the research and brought it to him um, and said, you know, uh, so if you looked at the legal profession, looked look at kind of who are the stars in the academy. Um, and, and go through a lot of different fields. What you will find is those stars, those people who, um, for whatever reason, have been kind of uh, allowed to rise in those arenas, they have been men. They have been men. Um, so when we look at kind of the highest echelons, uh, 
if, if black people are present, then it's men who are black men who hold those positions, not black women. Now, that may be shifting some, but that was certainly the case at the time. Um, and so w- while more women, you might have actually found more women in the academy and all of those really kind of fancy spots and fancy places and mud with much higher salaries, not $3,000, but much higher salaries, what you saw were black men. Um, so I think you do see kind of structured privilege in that, uh, that sort of way. I also think, and I talk about this a little bit in the article I did, which is now 10 years old. Uh, I think there's some newer research and some newer thinking on this. Um, but in terms of black communities, I think that black men and black male issues are oftentimes centered um, to either the exclusion or uh, at least to the kind of dis- um, 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 uh, limitations or uh, diminishment, that's the word I guess I was looking for, to uh, black women's issues. That black male issues in, in black communities are often centered. Um, and that's a function of male privilege. Um, when you look at the few institutions that are in our communities, I think what, what you will find, and that too may be shifting some, is that you will find at the higher level black men. Function of male privilege. Um, so I think that is there. Now, is it as uh, robust, <laughs> if you can use that kind of positive word, uh, as in uh, white communities and other communities? No. Um, and is it limited and restricted? Um, um, uh, is this kind of access to a male privilege restricted um, 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 by the society uh, for black males? Of course it is. On the one hand. On the other hand, when we talk about victimization and vulnerabilities, are black men uniquely vulnerable in some sorts of ways? Absolutely. That's absolutely truth. Both of those things are true. Um, and so when we start talking about complexity, then we have to start talking about complexity. Um, and so when we go back to the, um, uh, we go back to the um, racial profile and stop and frisk, that's, that's kind of dominated really by uh, black males. So, uh, black males, um, for a variety of reasons, one is, you know, who do you uh, trust, as, as, as John Calmore would say, in um, anonymous space, in public space? Uh, men generally are seen as more threatening, and black men are seen, seen as particularly threatening. Uh, therefore, they, there's a lot more surve- surveillance of black male activity. It doesn't matter what they're doing. You know, if they're, you know, singing a song or minding their business, a lot more surveillance um, of black men than there is of black women. I think that's absolutely true. That's what I call gender racism. Um, But both of those things seem to be true to me. Um, And... um, um, and, and, and black males are uniquely just like black females. I mean, I think all of these subgroups have, when we take a multidimensional um, a viewpoint, um, what we will see is different groups are oppressed and structured and constrained in different sorts of ways. Um, so I think that's fair. I don't know if that answer begins to answer that question, but uh, that's it- what I think. It does. And this is why I'm so glad that you indulged me to give me a definition for privilege, because that helps, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. at least for me, it's very, Mm -hmm. very helpful. So access to benefits of domination, you know, I'm thinking of black males as and I am Mm -hmm. a black male. So, you know, this could Mm -hmm. be my Mm -hmm. bias, but okay. 
So access to benefits mm-hmm. of domination. And I'm thinking, OK, so there should be evidence, concrete evidence of black males having mm-hmm. access to benefits of domination. I do not see that exercise oh. like anywhere. Uh, if if that and were ma- and no, you don't you don't think there's any evidence of uh, access domination to is male a- privilege or access to male domination in society. You see no Black male of black access to that in any regard, really? Well, when you started your response, you said that you mm-hmm. were having difficulties coming up with concrete examples. That was what you said. And then you said uh, in terms of the academy, which for me, mm-hmm. the academy, I mean, I hope we're not saying that what the employment practices on the academy, that that's like representative, like the limited small number of black people who have a job in the ivory towers, that that's representative of black people on the whole. The vast majority of black males and females are not going to have jobs. They are even the opportunity to get a degree. So, I mean, even if they. But, be, but keep pushing that. So I would challenge you, in fact, to go look at at other sorts so because this the the wage income um the the difference the differences between you know black women are on the bottom uh so the when we look at wage differentials it is black men it's white men black men white women sometimes they switch back and forth and then black women that is pretty consistent that's not just out of the academy mm-hmm. so i would encourage you to take a closer look at where those wage differentials are coming from. Uh, so that when we think about women, women are segmented into jobs that are lower paying to begin with. Okay. Uh, hang, hang, just hang on one second. Know, and, I, I did want to get in. I have seen some of those wage uh, chart statistics and what have you. Mm-hmm. I have seen some where mm-hmm. white women are also in front of uh, black white people, period, are in front of all black people, period. white females, yeah. white males, right. everybody's in front of black people. That's one in the morning. That's huge. Uh, Cause that's not right. the way that you stated it, but you know, okay. Uh, the next point. No, that no, I thought- no, no. And, and so, no, no, no. I think you ought to go back and look at that because, um, and, and maybe that has shifted, mm-hmm. but in fact, and I can't, and I wish I'd have looked this up because actually I think it's in my book. Um, because one of the things we had a hard time, I had a hard time doing at the time that I was writing the book, because there's always, the comparisons are always black men to white men and then white women, uh, to black women. Mm. And so we made an effort to look across those categories. Um, and at the time, I think, and I'd have to really look it up. It was, um, uh, white men made the dollar, black men made, I don't know what they made, uh, you know, something like uh, 80%, per- uh, 80% on the dollar, white women made something like 73%, and women made, like, I'm making up these numbers, and black women made like Oh, okay, uh, well, wait a minute, since so, you, since you so, haven't looked it up and I so, haven't looked it up, I'm willing to concede that, you know, you could be correct. I'm just uh-huh. saying, I know I have seen statistics where white women are in front of black males. I just wanted to get that stated. That could, I'm not saying it's an yeah. error, I'm just, I have seen those studies, but since you didn't Look, mm-hmm. the, the point that I did want to get in, though, uh, in the introduction mm-hmm. with Dr. Curry, he said that the amount of money that black males make mm-hmm. that's supposed to be mm-hmm. somewhat higher than black females is so small and we're in the same area. It's not like black males mm-hmm. make so much more on average than black females that they're mm-hmm. able to go and hang out at Trump Tower and leave black females. That's not the case. <laughs> like they're staying in the same mm-hmm. spot. You're in the same mm-hmm. social circle. It's not enough mm-hmm. to, to begin talking about this as though for all of this time that we spent on the unearned black male privilege, like really? It's that substantial mm-hmm. in a system dominated by white supremacy? Like really? 
I, I heard that quote. I heard that quote. And what he said, I thought, and I'd have to look at it again. Um, he was also subtracting out the men who were unemployed, uh, men who were incarcerated. He, uh, incarcerated. He, was, he was making, I think, a sophisticated analysis. Um, but, but he was, you know, he was massaging these statistics. Um, and so that, yeah, in certain circumstances, it might be in a family, so certain circumstances might be 3,000, but he was averaging it across, um, across the groups. Um, and maybe that's a fair analysis. Maybe that's a fair way of kind of looking at the issue. But I, but I would challenge you to look across uh, industries. And although I think that may be shifting, so um, I recently heard that Black women um, are quickly becoming one of the highest educated groups in the country. I find that kind of startling. Um, and so that tells me there is some, there are some shifts going on. Um, but, but I would, I would have you look kind of across industry. So I gave you the example of the Academy, but these statistics are not based in the Academy. That's one point. The second point is this, um, when we talk, when I talked about, and you haven't even addressed that, when I talked about community focus and community energy, spent a lot around black male issues and, um, um, uh, and male dominance in community institutions, um, that, again, is about male privilege. And I think that is real. So much real. Actually, my son wrote a paper on this, that um, even in, in the context of Black Lives Matters, even though it was uh, started by three women, two of whom I think are trans women, um, <clears throat> Um, that the focus very quickly became uh, uh, became on um, p- police brutality against uh, black men, and some of that might have been legitimate because I think that black men are, you know, surveilled um, to a much higher degree than black women. Um, but but out of in the process of that, you have the development of this movement. Say her name, um, because um, the women who are abused by police were kind of invisible in all of this, even though we know that um, the incarceration of black women is increasing by leaps and bounds. Um, but, but, but the community's focus was really kind of on what was happening to black men. And so I think that is a function of privilege. It's also a function of maybe raw numbers. I would concede that, but I think that's also a function of privilege. Um, that does not mean, I don't know that it has to be either or. I, I, I'm not sure we have to be engaged in the uh, sweepstakes, as someone called it, of oppression. I think that what you will find is we are in, uh, oppressed in different sorts of ways, in ways that are compounded um, and that, um, that impact the entire community such that you see these other kinds of statistics, right? We have highest mortality rates. We have uh, uh, some of the lowest uh, incomes uh, that we have, um, um, you know, kind of just walked out from, 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 from health to income to wealth, or we probably at the negative uh, wealth level, uh, to any kind of a social indicator of well-being, we're at the bottom. Uh, as a group, um, that does not mean that we don't we're not uh, differentially treated, that we don't uh, bring our own um, uniqueness, um, that we're not oppressed in unique ways based upon kind of our gender or our class and that sort of stuff. All of that is there, and some of it brings privilege, and some of it brings um, disadvantage. 
Right. So that if we if we're taking kind of a complex approach, um, I'm, I'm I'm not so sure what the harm is in saying yes that uh, black men in some limited fashion benefit from male pr- privilege. What okay. else would be new? Uh, my, <laughs> they also uh, my... have some distinct disadvantages, right? Okay. I just wanted to hop in to give my my response to to two components of privilege <laughs> and then the portion uh, that you said about uh, not responding to this alleged uh, unearned uh, unearned privilege that black males have in the quote-unquote community the first point just with the word privilege just for any of our listeners i've recommended for years and this conversation would just for me be further evidence this is why i discourage the use of the term privilege uh i'm talking about the system of racism white supremacy i'm talking about power uh just in my view Mm -hmm. i just don't see the constructive Mm -hmm. value of trying to dig through the rubble of our lives Mm -hmm. and under white power Mm -hmm. to try to figure out, well, maybe you have a little bit of privilege in this capacity, certainly not enough to reverse all of the terrorism that is being heaped on you and other black people, but maybe you have a few nuggets of privilege. Like I just don't see that. And in fact, I said before I was at the white privilege conference, I went to a conference hosted, uh, they have workshops, right? So I went to the workshop with Diane Mm Goodman. This is a suspected racist white female. And she talked, the theme of the workshop was supposed to be listing, finding ways of working against your privilege. And she wanted everybody in the workshop to list different forms of privilege that they had. And I mean, it got to the point, in my view, if we're supposed to be here to talk about white supremacy, which is what the founder of the conference said explicitly, and now we're here and we're Mm -hmm. talking about, well, I'm six feet tall. And you're five feet tall, so I'm a foot taller than you, so I have mm-hmm. height privilege. And you mm-hmm. are 45, and I'm 25, so I have age privilege. I mean, that's I have five mm-hmm. shirts, and you have two shirts. I have shirt I mean, that's kind of where this has gotten. And I'm like, this is absolute folly. I was led to believe mm-hmm. we were addressing white power mm-hmm. and white supremacy, not mm-hmm. picking out little uh, bits of ways where maybe I have a slight advantage. Again, nothing in comparison to white supremacy. That's one. The second point, when you talked about the, I don't, that's another term that I don't use. If you have a community, mm-hmm. you cannot be under subjugation and have a quote unquote community. Uh, when you talked about black people's black males, specifically mm-hmm. their issues being addressed. And I've heard that a lot mm-hmm. with regards to black lives matter and people saying that people do not address uh, issues like Daniel Holtzclaw when he was former enforcement official, when he was raping right. exclusively black females uh, in Oklahoma, right. I heard it mm-hmm. with that case specifically mm-hmm. uh, that this is an example mm-hmm. uh, where black males get all this attention. This happened. He was arrested in August of 2014, which was the exact same time right. that the crisis erupted in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. So you have all this attention mm-hmm. on Michael Brown and zero basically on Daniel Holtzclaw in Ferguson. I would submit that that's true. In Mm -hmm. my view, that is not an illustration of black male privilege because the vast majority of black males who have a problem with law enforcement or any other aspect of racism are not going to get any coverage, as is the case with most black females. It just happened to be this incident with uh, Michael Brown that got a lot of attention. And if it's a police incident, these uh, explosive little dramas that people watch and become all fascinated with, I think just the dash cam video or if it isn't and you have a riot and that sort of thing, it can become uh, attention getting for a while. But these episodes, as you stated in your report, I can just read what you said from uh, progressive black masculinities. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. be surprising that 
This happens a lot with black males because it's disproportionately black males that this sort of thing is happening to. This is your own work in progressive yeah. masculinity. As you write, common yeah. sense exp- explanations suggested that a complex array of social factors such as poverty, racism, the war on drugs, changed penal policies, and culturally specific behavior patterns gave rise to the mass incarceration of black men. Although various analyses weighted a host of factors to the extent there was a focus on black and brown men. Many studies suggested that racism played a part. Black women, however, are also subjected a subject to some of these same conditions, including racism and poverty. But though black women are experiencing rising levels of incarceration, their numbers do not begin to compare to those of black men. I just admit it's more likely that this sort of thing is going to happen with a black male. But my question that I wanted to ask, how is the interrogation of alleged unearned black male privilege? How is that going to help us permanently neutralize white power racism? I think that's an excellent question because I don't think you can do one without the other. So that um, what I would simply say to you is male supremacy is real. Look, Look around the world. Male supremacy is real. White supremacy is real. Male supremacy is real. Uh, elite power and supremacy is real. Those things are real. Um, and, um, and I applaud you um, for being concerned about uh, dissecting these communities, which is also a term you don't like, but, um, and, and talking about these nuances. But um, th- this is the world we live in. This is what's real. And to me, to, in order to have a pro- proper um, um, set of action steps, you want to do something about it. You've got to have a proper diagnosis. Um, and so, um, so we need to be clear about what's real and what's happening. That's why I, mean, I undertook that work, because the explanations that were um, popular at the time that I wrote that book did not, in fact, I thought, um, really explain uh, certain phenomena and certain things that were going on in our community. So I undertook that work because of that. That is, we have to explain, be able to explain what's going on in our world. Um, And we've got to be true to that, even if we don't like it, um, that these phenomena, that certain structures are real. White supremacy is real. It's a global structure. Male supremacy is a global structure and has a much longer history quite frankly, um, then we can't even remember the history. It's so ancient. We can't even, we don't even know where it came from. But male supremacy is real. Um, and so in the context of kind of this uh, racial hierarchy uh, under which we live now, um, um, we find that those things intersect. So it's not just, we don't see white women up there at the top of this hierarchy. We see white men at the top of the hierarchy. We see the intersection of whiteness and white white domination, since you don't like the word privilege, uh, and white power, and male power, and male domination, etc. And a lot of forces fighting to keep that in place. We also see that, and uh, I think it was uh, Bell Hooks who came up with the term of something like Frank Valdez came up with a term that was similar. You know, when we looked at this order, it was, um, um, I think she talked about kind of white uh, supremacist capitalism or something like that. You know, she, she really talked about the intersection of race, gender, class, sexuality, 
you know, um, all of those. She listed it in kind of a, a phrase. Um, I talk a, a lot about um, elite white men, elite Anglo uh, heterosexual white men. This is what the top of the hierarchy looks like. That's real. And it's not white women. It's not, you know, they may be up there. Uh, but they're not at the top of this hierarchy. Um, and so male domination and male privilege is real. Uh, male domination or being complicit in the system of male domination or having some benefits of that, even if that benefit is constrained by racism or heterosexism or uh, whatever, you know, or uh, um, um, uh, some sort of class structure, right? So uh, poor... Uh, black men are not um, uh, placed in the same sort of space that more elite black men are. That's just a fact. So, yes, an elite um, black man might be stopped in his Mercedes. But I can tell you that poor black men walking on the street um, and, and in their cars are stopped far more often. Um, particularly where they are in our very segregated neighborhoods. Um, so those are real. So if we want to talk about how we start addressing um, this system of white supremacy, um, we need to be clear about kind of what's going on. We have to have a, an analysis that can at least um, reflect or uh, acknowledge or, or explore uh, some of these things that make this thing more complicated. Okay. Having said that, so I would say that white supremacy is very much intersecting with male supremacy um, and also with class status. Um, and um, when we start trying to address how to attack male, uh, uh, white supremacy, uh, that we can't do it without um, taking into account some of these other things that are working. Uh, you know, and because a lot of times we'll find ourselves working at, 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 at cross purposes. So one of the things I argue in that um, particular uh, article is that, in fact, um, um, not so much male domination, but of sexism, right? So the belief that men should have certain kinds of advantages uh, um, and the practices of sexism actually undermine anti-racist struggle when it happens in our own community. It undermines, it puts us at odds with one another. It undermines the anti-racist struggle. Um, if, you know, um, you are engaged in what are sexist and uh, classist um, behavior and thinking and strategies, that you're undermining the anti-racist struggle. Um, and so we have to be clear in our diagnosis. That's why we're talking about those. That's why I said it's not a sweepstake uh, 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 of some sort of, of oppressions. Who's worse off? And that is that. That is not that. Uh, for me, anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a process of trying to analyze what is actually going on in our communities, and then what do we have to do to um, put ourselves in the strongest position to fight white supremacy. Hmm. Okay. And fighting, and fighting white supremacy may also means because those are systems of domination. So if you are against systems of domination, then you're against male domination. You're against male supremacy. If you are against, if you believe that, um, that domination constrains, and restricts, oppresses, and harms human potential, then we should be on the same side around domination. 
in its various forms. And so our strategy is probably going to need to address those. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves fighting among ourselves because one faction is trying to dominate or to get some, some Benny here or there when we really need to be united. So we need to address all of those dominations together, not okay. just one, because the things are, are interrelated. That's what I would argue. Okay. I want to make sure we get to some of our callers. Um, we had a couple of people that dialed in to get a, a quick question in uh, as well. I did want to say, it's not that I don't like the term community or the term privilege. Mm-hmm. It's that I've concluded mm-hmm. these are not the most accurate terms to describe, as you just stated, to get a, an accurate assessment of the problem. I've concluded these terms are not accurate. Uh, just looking at the definition and what we have, it's not that I don't like, and I just, I make an effort to point that out mm-hmm. consistently that this is mm-hmm. not about like or dislike of terms. The second mm-hmm. point uh, I've also concluded just following counter racist logic, you cannot have two Supremes. Uh, if white supremacy exists, mm-hmm. you cannot have white supremacy and then say that black men, Males are victims of white supremacy and black males are participants in male supremacy. Uh, that just to me is not logical. Uh, that just gets to it the may fundamentals. Not be logical. Of, oh, it may not be see, logical. That's but important. It, it the, is hang accurate. on one second. Hang on one second. Because <laughs> I was I was talking, and that's if that, if we have a difference of opinion there, that's fine. Because uh, I could be wrong. I'm still learning about this as well. That's why I was uh, hoping, glad to have you to come on the program to discuss these issues. And Dr. Curry, he had referenced your work as well. But I do try to make an effort where I do encourage and make an effort to follow logic in dealing with racism because I have seen consistently that that is one of the tactics of mm-hmm. racists to lead us into things that are not logical and how we are conceptualizing and approaching these issues. Uh, but some of the folks who dialed in who had a question, again, our guest, Buffalo, uh, University at Buffalo School of Law, Professor Athena Matua, uh, the caller at 6133. Did you have a question uh, for uh, Professor Matua? You should be with us. Hi, uh, good evening, Gus, and good evening to the guests, uh, Dr. Matur. Um, I, have, I have a question about the about the election. Um, um, do you think that Hillary was a superior candidate for black people, um, knowing that she supported and helped author the 1994 crime bill that tripled the federal inmates, and she she also uh, supports or supported uh, Margaret Sanger, who was for for uh, population control of our people and um, for for other racist policies that the uh, the Clinton supported. So her her type of racism to me is more just more refined as an attorney, and Trump is more gross and above it. So who who do you think would would have been a better candidate for us in this election? Um, there, there, there were no perfect candidates in this election. I started off as a, um, Bernie Sanders supporter because I liked a number of his economic policies. Um, and I thought they were policies that would better serve our community. So that's where I started off. But, you know, I'm a pragmatist. Um, and once he uh, lost the nomination, I quickly moved to Hillary Clinton. Now, I've always liked uh, Hillary Clinton. I think that um, she's been in politics in one form or another for 30 years. And for 30 years, uh, people have been um, um, criticizing and condemning her. Um, and I'm not so sure she could ever rise above uh, some of those criticisms, a lot of which I think are false. Uh, the ones you point out, however, I think are very much true. Um, and 
I'm not so sure um, if I thought that Hillary was going to make much progress on uh, some of the economic issues and on, even on some of the race and gender issues, issues that I know she knows. I don't know if I thought she was going to make much progress on those. Uh, but was she a superior candidate to Trump? Absolutely. Um, she was not going to go down there and build a wall. She was not going to ban uh, uh, Muslims from the country. She was not going to require that they register um, um, in some national registry. That just reminds me of um, Nazi Germany, uh, that they register so people can keep track of them and that sort of stuff. Those kinds of things she would not have done. Um, and I don't think her message was basically and profoundly about exclusion. I just don't think that's true. So as compared to Trump, to me, is no contest, no contest. Uh, is she more sophisticated and is hers a more sophisticated form of racism? No doubt, no doubt. Uh, but I think also we might have been able to hold her more accountable, um, assuming she could make some more progress. That is, I'm not so sure we were ever going to give Hillary Clinton the um, latitude that we gave uh, President Obama. Uh, I think we held back a lot on that. Um, and, and I think we benefited from his presidency, but he could have done so much more. Uh, and, and I have some criticisms of him as well. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the latitude I think we gave him, I don't think Hillary was ever going to get. And so we might have been able to hold her a little more accountable uh, to her platform and some of the good policies I think she had on her webpage. So between her and Trump, this to me is no contest, really. No, no contest. Why? Why is it no contest? I mean, for for us, um, not not for other people. I mean, just for the black community. Well, I don't think so. I didn't list that one, but I don't think that she would. I mean, having um, assigned on to uh, President Bill Clinton's. Um, crime bill and, and that sort of thing, having kind of uh, uh, agreed with it at the time. Uh, I don't think that she would have, she would do that during her presidency. In fact, I think she was committed to, so for instance, with regard to um, Donald Trump, uh, she would not be talking about reinstituting some sort of stop and frisk policy as a kind of national policy. That would not happen. The stop and frisk policy has been very detrimental because we have the highest amount of kind of uh, uh, some people call it an occupation. We have a lot of uh, police engagement in our communities. Um, stop and frisk uh, policies just put us at risk for harassment um, and then possibly death um, and certainly higher levels of incarceration. That's a fact. And she would not have done any of that. So that alone, I think, makes her uh, a, a much more positive um, uh, um, candidate and possible uh, president as compared to Trump. And that, I think that's just one policy. I think there are other policies that she had in place from which we would have benefited from. Um, I think some of her economic policies, though not great, some of her econo economic policies we would have benefited from. We certainly would have benefited, I think, from a lot of her um, uh, focus on family and children, so daycares, uh, um, family leaves, we would benefit from that. Black women would benefit from uh, some paid childcare um, leave. They would benefit from support of, 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 of childcare more broadly. Um, 
healthcare. I, I think she wanted to improve uh, Obamacare. Uh, just leaving that in place, which we can be assured of, will be repealed. Um, we're benefiting from that. We benefited from uh, uh, um, the Affordable Health Care Act. Absolutely. When it's gone, if we have not understood that, we will understand that because it will be repealed probably. Uh, now, uh, Trump is kind of wavering on when and how, um, but a voucher system is not, uh, you know, a, a, some sort of voucher system is probably okay. going to mean less health care for us. So there's a lot of ways in, in which I think we would have benefited from a number of her policies that weren't particularly radical uh, and from a number of the policies that she would have continued that uh, President Obama put in place. None of that's going to happen, I think, with 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 a President Trump. Um, and 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 it may not even be because of him personally, but because now Republicans now um, are in control of all three branches of government. Uh, Does that make sense to you? Uh, the caller, uh, 6133, did that, did she answer your question? Well, I mean, her answer is based on conjecture and it's not based on what Hillary's done in the past and what policies she supported in the past. So it sounds like you're just saying that you hope that she would have done this and done that. I mean, you, you, I mean, I, I like your response, but you, you didn't really answer the question, but thank, thank you anyway. Well, yeah, it's kind of based upon her website and her policies, her stated policies, all of it's conjecture, hmm. right? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the caller at 4789, 4789, did you have a question for Professor Matua? Uh, yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, Dr. Matua, I had like two quick questions. Um, okay. First question is, have you been successful in uh, turning a white college student not practice racism? Turning a white college student into what now? To not practice racism. To not practice racism. Uh, that's a really tall order. Uh, <laughs> I would not claim that. What I would, what I would say is that uh, what I have done is had um, conversations and classes with them that helped raise their awareness of their own biases. Um, I've raised their awareness about what the practices of racism, like some of the practices of racism looks like, what microaggressions look like, um, how, what kind of effect they have. I think I've done that. I have raised their consciousness and engaged them and encouraged them to be critical thinkers um, in terms of um, how society is structured, actually structured, um, and, and what their own uh, participation has been in it and what it could be in it, right? So I, this uh, semester I'm teaching a course where we're talking about social impact advocacy. So how do you as a lawyer engage in um, activities geared toward transformative change? Um, so raise their consciousness is what I would say and made them aware and, and engage them in critical thinking. Uh, whether I've changed them, um, change, not just ch change them, change actually them to the extent that their practices are different. Perhaps, I'm not so sure I will ever know. Uh, but uh, people live a long time. So um, they have to continue to be engaged with these issues. 
in order to really start to change, right? Change is a slow and long process. Um, so for instance, I was, I had a, um, in, uh, interaction with a, a gentleman who, uh, lived down the street from me. And one of the things he said to me was, well, I marched with King. And I, my response was, yeah, that was 50 years ago. What have you done since then? And what has been your engagement? And at that point, he was talking about boys, very young boys, loitering on the corners at the end of our block. You know, that told me that, you know, this guy has some problems. And he might have been kind of a really uh, progressive, critical, anti-racist thinker at one point of his life, but he probably had not continued those practices. So who knows? I'm trying. Uh, thank you for that. Um when you were talking about uh, black male privilege, it was—I thought it was telling yeah. that you said that, especially about the lawyers. Well, I guess you said that uh, black male was something to the effect of having been allowed to be stars, and I thought that was telling because you said having been allowed. So I guess my question is, could you? I don't, but maybe you can't. If you could, mm -hmm. it would be awesome if you could define male supremacy um and then i don't know if there's a difference between male supremacy and then black male supremacy and then also elite supremacy and then mm -hmm. i was hoping that you could sort of finish it off by uh, telling us which one is the most of supreme of those i don't know or maybe even add white supremacy in there and then uh Tell us which one is the most supreme out of all these supreme uh, systems. Thank you. Um, that's that's quite a mouthful. Let me let me try to um, say. I said aloud. I think I was just being cautious um, because I think that um, a lot of times when we find ourselves in these positions. So I'm a law professor. Um, I've gone to great schools. Um, and I think our tendency a lot of times is to say, well, you know, well, then Athena is exceptional. I'm not really exceptional. I have, I, I have a lot of luck. I have strong family support, uh, people who have pushed me up over the hill. I've had um, been in some right places at the right time. So it's not just all about my hard work. I, that uh, is what I think I was really hedging against, um, that uh, not just allowed by white people, but allowed by circumstances to, to kind of um, be in these places. Yes, uh, such people work hard, but the, the reality is more complicated than that, I think is what I was doing. In terms of kind of male supremacy, white supremacy, leap supremacy, I... I, I um, um, I think those things are are, um, are uh, interconnected. Um, um, I tend to talk about because it's kind of my specialty. I tend to talk about race, and uh, I'm a critical race theorist. I say that first, um, and so I tend to focus a lot more on racial structures. Um, but um, I do think uh, that when we, if we step back and talk about kind of who rules the world. And though that's changing and that's part of the fear that's out there, it is elite white men. And by elite, I mean simply rich white men, uh, rich, wealthy, and men who are in control of 
white men who are in control of huge institutions that have lots of resources. Um, these are the people who are in decision-making uh, positions uh, more per- pervasively than anyone else. So I would say kind of elite white men. Um, um, and, and so that is a thing, and that really is um, a statement of the intersection um, of race, uh, white supremacy, male supremacy, um, and wealth, um, and control of institutions. Um, so I'm not sure one is more dominant than the other. Um, I think they have different histories. So when we talk about kind of male domination and male supremacy, and we talk about patriarchy, patriarchy predates, predates the rise of Europe. That's a very ancient history. Um, in some ways, it's more acceptable even still to be, uh, it's more acceptable, at least at the level of the superficial, uh, to be sexist than it is to be racist, right? People are more offended if you call them racist than if you call them sexist. Uh, I just think those are um, realities of the world that we live in. The world that we live in is kind of complex. It is not simple. It's not um, often either or. It's a lot of times and this and this and this in equal measure. Um, So I guess I, I, I would leave it there. I don't know if that's a direct answer to your question because you really want me to establish a hierarchy of dominations. Um, and I think in real life, from at least where I sit, and I could real, well be wrong, um, all of those things are interacting all the time. So, up there. Does that get at your question? Uh, sorry? Go ahead, sir. I'm Hello? sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, no, I guess my question was just like, I mean, it's very simple. Like, I mean, I guess I understand what you're saying, but that they intersect, but um, which one is more supreme? You, I feel like you can't have, um, supreme is a very strong word. It means that you are on top. It means that you are more powerful, that you are more dominant, that so you cannot have multiple Supremes. It just sounds, it doesn't make any sense to my mind. I don't know who said that you can't have more than one thing going on at any one time, because in fact, that's the way life is. We always have multiple things going on. That's just a more complicated analysis for sure. But I didn't use the, I didn't use the term. I didn't use the terms things, but at the same time, I don't want to get into like an argument, but I I just want, I didn't use this term things. I said, we were using the term supreme. Supreme, right. Supreme. And so, so I would ask you, let me ask you, you answer this, you answer your question. Who, at least up until kind of the current moment or in the current moment, who rules the world? What does that look like? To you, um, so, so like one thing that I'm very cautious of is when I ask like a very simple question that somebody asks me a question by redirecting it. I feel like you could just answer my question and then 
we could change the subject to me, but I was sort of asking you the question about supremacy and what is. But at the same time, I don't want to get into an argument. Um, you, you, you can just not answer it. That's fine. Thank you. Right on. Uh, well, we had, I, try, I tried to answer it. Mm-hmm. We just we had one final person. They wrote in. They said they are not in a position where they can speak over the line, but they have been listening. They, their two quick questions were, mm-hmm. number one, mm-hmm. uh, where does Professor Matua think the narrative of white women being allies of black women or black people come from? And how did we black people end up buying into that narrative? That's question one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a fair enough question. Um, <laughs> um, do we, so, so one way to get at that would be, do we have any allies? Um, and I would say we have allies to degrees. Um, and our allies um, share uh, some of our concerns and part of our agenda, but they also have their own agendas. Um, and so one could say that we have no allies at all. Um, so another group would be white liberals. Are white liberals our allies? Uh, in some ways, I think they are. Um, I think there are a lot of white liberals who have, um, are sympathetic uh, to uh, an anti-racist agenda. They are sympathetic to... Um, let me leave that. And so they are allies to a degree. Uh, where they come out with uh, um, this kind of uh, sympathetic and willing to work on behalf of an anti-racist agenda uh, and notions of white supremacy, their own uh, kind of situation, um, it's hard to tell. But I do think they are allies. Um, I think that um, uh, white women... Um, at moments have been, not many, but at, <laughs> uh, have been allies. Uh, that is that they have been more willing to consider uh, sharing the resources and um, um, relating to others in humane um, and decent ways. I think that's real. And so I think they are allies to some degree or another. Um, what about other groups? I think the situation is the same. We share some common interests. Um, and um, I think it, it's necessary to have allies and to cultivate those allies and to set some common agendas. Um, so it's, an, it's a narrative, um, sure. Um, but I also think there's some um, reality there that, 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 that we find that maybe not white women writ large, but certainly we, there are white women who are allies. I think white feminists in some ways have been allies um, to some degree or another. So that's how I would answer that question. Otherwise, the, the answer could be we have no allies um, because you're always going to have different groups that have slightly different agendas. Hmm. Okay. Her last question, mm-hmm. she says, uh, earlier you spoke about... Uh, 90 plus percent of black females who voted for uh, Hillary Clinton, what does she read into the fact that Clinton did not thank those same black females who voted for her so heavily yet she thanked everyone else? That's interesting. These are tougher questions. (laughs) These are tough questions. 
yeah, I don't know what to, I don't know exactly what to make of that. Um, because um, she was clearly aware um, early on that she had a lot of um, uh, black support um, and that she had a lot of black women, um, women, yeah, women's support. Um, and that, um, you know, she was, in fact, um, engaged, and she has she always engaged, so I'm a Delta. She was at the Delta Convention, Centennial Convention, a couple of years ago, and, and spoke, I think, in really interesting ways, and was very much aware of the issues. That's why I don't doubt that she knows the issues. The question was whether what she was going to be able to do about them, and whether she was committed to doing uh, something about the issues that we might think are important. Um, um, the mothers of the movement, as, as they are referred to, uh, campaigned heavily on her behalf. And so um, she was certainly aware uh, that she, she gained a lot of, she had a lot of support early on um, from the black community and black women in particular. Uh, that she didn't acknowledge that, that's just um, sad. And maybe not surprised, and I have to think about it, but, but just sad. Huh. What else can we say? Mm-hmm. To be expected, uh, we had. One... Yeah, maybe not surprising, right? But... <laughs> Skank. That's what I will say. I will use your term. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh... Don't quote me. On that. <laughs> uh, but I said it. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. The person we had a, a lollygagger. Uh, the person that called in from a block number. Uh, did you have a final question for mm-hmm. Professor uh, Matua? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Lollygagger. <laughs> I called in late. Oh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I just wanted to thank your guests for coming on because uh, it's definitely uh, intriguing to hear you guys discuss these issues. It's giving me a lot to think mm-hmm. about. Because at one point when you were talking, I didn't think you were making much sense uh, when you were talking about uh, black male privilege and whatnot. But... um. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, just hearing you guys go back and forth, and Gus actually saying that he didn't feel like he might he might not be making any sense himself. It's just uh, I think I think that kind of switched my thinking that we do need to think more on uh, some of these issues. So just thank you for coming on and uh, making me think a little bit uh, more than I had expected. And that's pretty much. Oh, it. thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Grand. Uh, before we let you enjoy the rest of your evening, do you remember uh, Lennon Lacey, uh, Professor Matua? Um, no, I'm not so sure I do. Name sounds familiar, but cue me in. The black male in North Carolina uh, in 2014, he was found hanging from a tree suspiciously. Uh, this was the same month that Michael Brown was shot. August, lots of things happened that month. August of 2000. Yeah, lots of stuff. Lots of, yes, I do remember that. Just, um, they were they were just doing the. Uh, it was lots of anniversaries this past summer, and that was one uh, that mm-hmm. they were reminding mm-hmm. and blah 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 all that other stuff. I was trying to. I was just trying to ask people because a lot of people had even forgot it. It passed. Like I, so many things happened that people had uh, kind of forgotten. That one just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Um, it has been a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Uh, folks can check out some of the uh, reports that we uh, discussed this evening, uh, Progressive 
Black Masculinities, a collection uh, Professor uh, Matua uh, edited and uh, contributed, wrote the introduction and has the first uh, chapter uh, in the series talking about some of the issues that we discussed uh, this evening. Uh, you can go to her uh, faculty page uh, at University at Buffalo and see some of her uh, other work and uh, issues that she regularly studies. Thank you so much for hanging out on the program. was glad we were able to follow up on another one of uh, Dr. Curry's uh, reference points from his earlier visit. We uh, really appreciate you uh, sharing with us. We'll continue to think about these issues and uh, hopefully we can have you back on the program down the road. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. I appreciated it. For sure, for sure. Uh, lots of regard for black mothers. So take care of the family and yourself. Keep up the outstanding work. <laughs> Thank you. For sure. Good evening, Professor Matua. Good evening. Bye-bye. Good evening. Context of white supremacy. Uh, reference from uh, Dr. Curry's broadcast that was September? of uh, this year when he was on the program, uh, the segment, the little audio snippet that we heard at the beginning, uh, you can go back if you want to hear the full archive. We talked about Lee Parker, a few other big presidential election and the likelihood that Trump was going to be ultimately successful, but you can check that out in the archives. Uh, as I stated earlier, we will be here on Thursday. We will have two programs uh, cause that's the holiday, right? So we'll be here. The early broadcast is 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Central, and 1 p.m. Pacific. That will be Paul Ifaomi Grant. Uh, he'll be on the program live from the United Kingdom, uh, London native. He's been on the program a few times before. Uh, that will help out since people should be able to listen early since nobody, or I won't say nobody, but a lot of people will have uh, the day off uh, that day. And then with the big time difference, uh, we have to broadcast earlier if we're going to have someone on from you know overseas or what have you. He'll be here early. And then our normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, workplace racism. Uh, dial in. Folks should not be working. So you can dial in and discuss these views might be interesting if you are at some sort of gathering and people have had their meal and whatever else, I guess they're watching football or whatever people do and uh, tuning into workplace racism to see what people think if it resonates in any way with their experiences on the job. But that's Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Friday, Lothrop Stoddard, the rising tide of color against white world supremacy, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be here uh, Saturday for the compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And then we'll be here on a Monday, uh, almost a week uh, away. Dr. Martin Kevorkian, previously mentioned University of Texas, Austin, uh, Abigail Fisher's very university that she felt she got snubbed. Uh, Dr. Kevorkian will be here. Uh, we will be discussing the British film series Black Mirror. Uh, one of our guests, uh, she, excuse me, one of our listeners, sorry, one of our listeners, uh, she commented about this series hmm, a month or so ago uh, on the compensatory call-in. Uh, I think she was specifically talking about uh, one of the episodes where a white woman, uh, it's, it's, uh, this series is sci-fi, right? It's like the Twilight Zone, so this white woman, uh, the white woman from the help specifically, I'll give you her exact name Monday when we discuss all this, but the white woman from the help, the like explicitly racist white woman who was trying to keep uh, her black help from using her toilet. Uh, that white woman specifically is the main character. And she 
is uh, everyone is obsessed with social media. And so your job, everything, your housing is about social media and your status on social media. And so uh, it's this white woman, her tale of uh, tragedy where she gets all of these downgrades and loses her status on social media and, you know, it ruins her whole life. But the interesting component is that pretty much all of the people that are responsible for her loss of social media status are black people. She keeps having all of these interactions with black people and they immediately go on social media and ding her down. Uh, it's almost every single person that she has an encounter with is a black person. That was what sparked some attention. Uh, the more that I thought about it, I, I thought there were, a lot of significant things happening both in this episode and the whole series. It's not very long. It's three seasons, but they have like three episodes in a season. So it's not, I mean, reading is way more important than watching television, but it's not a whole lot of uh, viewing. And I think a lot where it's not, I think to me, it's very flagrant. A lot of these episodes are directly about racism, uh, white supremacy, I mean, explicit, right? That's a central part of the plot. But Dr. Kevorkian will be here next Monday to discuss the series. I think uh, it got picked up by Netflix in season three. So I think it might be gaining popularity. Uh, I don't know if people have seen it, but if you want to check out an episode or two to prepare, that will be coming up on Monday. Uh, with that, uh, folks had anything they wanted to get in before uh, we get ready to wrap up. We can make time for that. Um, Dr. Curry. Thank you for uh, the reference. Uh, he contributed a few questions that I got in as well as we uh, progressed with the program. If he was listening right on, uh, Dr. Curry can drop a lot about uh, his thoughts on uh, the exchange since his name did get mentioned uh, a few times. Uh, he might even have been listening live right on. Um, next, uh, let's see. I mentioned Lennon Lacey. Just I have heard that uh, presentation before about. Uh, the disproportionate amount of coverage uh, in terms of uh, black male victims in comparison to black female victims. I think we talked about that quite a bit back in the summer of 2014 around very issue that was brought up today. Daniel Holtzclaw, a uh, convicted rapist, former enforcement officer uh, in Oklahoma, and the very small amount of attention that that case got in comparison to like, you know, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, things that were happening at the same time. Uh, at the same year. And I just submit the same thing that I said back then, uh, the same thing I said on the program today, the vast majority of black victims, regardless, black males, black females, you're not going to get a lot of attention. Uh, I think that's very clear uh, in terms of what happens in the system of white supremacy. The vast majority of black people, whether it's an incident with enforcement officers or uh, banking problem being denied a loan or discrimination, what they call discrimination on the job or anything else. The vast majority of these incidents do not become uh, a big deal. Uh, and as I stated, you know, earlier, I think with regards to enforcement officers, those type of incidents become a big deal just because that has been popular for a long time to gripe about the police, particularly now when you have the age where it's cell phone video and everything that can become a great reality series to watch, which, you know, I've submitted consistently. That's about the size of it, really, uh, where people can watch and hashtag and do all that for a weekend. Just about the same type of thing happens almost predictably, uh, where it's just another black person is killed and nothing is done about it. Black male, black female, uh, disproportionately, this does happen to black males. So if it's a policing incident that gets a lot of attention, 
just by the numbers, it is more than likely going to be a black male that's getting attention for this. And in my view, that is not an illustration of black male privilege. That's kind of macabre if it is, but just in my view that uh, I do not assess it in that way, particularly because I don't believe that it's black males that are the ones that are producing that attention. If I thought that black males were able to get on the phone and access white or access domination, the power of domination to demand that the New York Times and the BBC and Al Jazeera and CNN and PR get there immediately and cover the incident from their perspective to the world, then I would say, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> if they're able to, to mobilize, that's not what I see happen at all, just for white dominated media and or Don Lemon or whomever else to come in and put up pictures of them making a gang sign and scowling at the camera to say that they, uh, you know, were strong. I just, that's just my view. These, some of these are the exact same things that I said back, uh, in 2014. And I would also just submit Dr. Curry. I think he did say when he was on the program that he, as a professor, uh, has come forward with research saying, you know, Hey, black males are being, you know, mistreated. I got this, this new data, I've been a scientist about it. And it is not, you know, yes, let's go promote this. Let's go, uh, you know, take this to the world and lots of enthusiasm. He said consistently, that's not been his experience. Uh, Dr. Smith, we just had on the program last week from the university of Utah. Uh, he made the point about you've had pretty vocal and justified criticism of what they call hip hop music uh, by a lot of black male artists uh, for the misogyny uh, and debased contempt uh, commentary on black females. Uh, he said a lot of that stuff has a lot of derogatory comments, uh, commentary directed at black males. Where's the assessment of uh, how hip hop music adversely impacts black males and the way that we think about process black males, where is that commentary at? And he said that you're going to find comparatively little, I think even I might not be doing him justice. I think he said he hadn't found any uh, commentary uh, talking about the way that hip hop degrades uh, black manhood. Uh, he said he hadn't found any, and he said, that's not even the point. Even if you can find one or two, it's going to pale in comparison to the amount of scholarship on how it impacts black females. The most important point beyond anything, again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I am still learning, but just in my assessment, uh, this would just be another illustration of the point I've, I've made for a long time. I am not talking about privilege. I'm not talking about white privilege. I'm not talking about black privilege, male privilege, young privilege, attractive privilege. I am talking about white power that trumps everything either that's true or it's not i do not that's not my assessment that you have uh multiple system multiple systems of supremacy as i stated on the program that is not logical my submission would be if you have those multiple systems they should not be called supremes you this is not unless diana ross is in the building we do not have supremes you have in my view it would make logical sense and it would keep down confusion if we don't call these supremes we just say that we have multiple systems of oppression and come up with a title that adequately explains that if we say that white supremacy exists i submit that trumps everything and i submit that in my view it just i don't see where it makes logical sense to try to dig in a system of white supremacy to see where victims of that system where they have quote unquote privilege that just and particularly like i said if we're attaching it to a, de a definition of having access to powers of domination i just do not see that uh evidenced even in the illustrations the examples that were given i don't see black males with access to domination where Michael Eric Dyson, 
or Dr. Curry can just, you know, walk on to any Ivy League campus uh, in the world with, uh, you know, and say, hey, I'm going to I am going to get tenure up in here. Uh, I have uh, unearned white or excuse me, unearned male privilege or access to male supremacy. And I'm going to get my cushy spot. I just I have not heard that. In fact, I think we just had. Dr. Smith on the program talking about the trauma and terrorism that black males face in an academic environment. And I still go back to what I said on the program. I think you have such a minute number of black people, male and female, in that academic space anyway. To me, that, again, is is just not representative of unearned black male privilege in a system dominated where the overall theme to me seems to be unequivocally white power white supremacy uh, with regards to the community aspect of it. I think that was touched on also in terms of uh, black males, quote unquote, being in positions of leadership. I've just taken the position. The leaders of black people are white. You might have black people, black males, black females. Anyone can be showcased. I think white people can show you better than I can tell you what they do to black leadership. And I will stop there and just, again, uh, uh, I just have not seen, and I could be in error. I'll continue to process and think, I just have not seen where assessing this problem, conceptualizing this problem, where we begin to look at victims, victims of racism, and then trying to say that they have, quote unquote, privileges. I just don't see that where that helps us uh, in dissecting this system. I I could be uh, in error. Uh, I would encourage folks to think about it. Follow the logic. That's what I would state consistently. Follow the logic. Follow the logic. <laughs> Follow the logic. We are united and dependent about how we're going about doing this. But to me, that just doesn't make uh, logical sense. I don't even talk about white people as having privilege, much less talking about black people, male or female, as having privilege. But I could be in error. Uh, if any folks uh, have any thoughts they want to get in before uh, we get ready to conclude, uh, feel free. Uh, we will not be doing our three hours. So be uh Johnny on the spot again, no lollygaggers. If you have uh, any commentary you want to make sure you get in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, I think I might have been getting a delay or something. I was listening online, so I don't know. When you say lollygaggers, I was just—I didn't hear anything, any like announcement of the time or anything like that. So I didn't want to just say that because I—I I don't know if I was getting a delay or not. But um, yeah, I was thinking I was gonna think more on it. Like I agree with some of the things you were saying, but um, it seems like you don't hear these types of conversations uh like very often, like the like the complexity of like like how you how you talk about racism and white supremacy like or counter racists talk about uh racism and white supremacy so you get a lot of uh like what she was saying like the point like things that she was saying you hear that more more often than uh, you know how you speak so i i don't know it just made me think like we have to maybe bone up on our understanding of that position that she that she that she's taking so we can maybe bring some clarity to it, because it, it was it was it was kind of confusing uh, at one, you know when she was when she was talking about uh, black male privilege. It's like it was kind of like she didn't have the evidence, and even even stated that she didn't have you know concrete evidence. But she 
she she thinks that uh, there's black male privilege. So yeah, it was it was it was interesting. It was an interesting program. So oh, I did want to ask her a question. Well, I didn't want to ask her because just listening to what she was saying, I didn't know if she would be able to answer it. But what do you make of the like contradiction of these white females? I mean, they say that they're you know, there's misogyny, but at the same time, they don't seem to vote their interests. There's a lot of things that they do that uh, contradicts them saying that there's, uh, you know, that they're being oppressed. I think white people in general are, I mean, white lies matter. Um, They are extraordinary at deceiving us. I think white women, yes, white people in general, they fight amongst themselves. Uh, yes, white women have been mistreated and denied access to having, you know, the same amount of power as white men at times and places uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy. Even white men fight with other white men uh, about how the plantation is going to be run and who has more power. All of that is true. None of that negates their primary concern and devotion is to the maintenance of global white power. And I think just a lot of times I think that gets minimized uh, or out and out refuted where a lot of times I'm not saying uh, Professor Matua, but just uh, in general, a lot of times that gets discarded, uh, misrepresented, minimized or just, you know, they go the exact opposite that it, this is it gets articulated as white male patriarchy, white male supremacy and white women are articulated as victims uh, or, you know, unwilling accomplices of some sort. And I just I reject all of that. That's not in my view. It doesn't make logical sense. You could not have a system of white supremacy without white women being totally on board and dedicated to this above and beyond anything else. And the record is clear. They demonstrate this on a regular basis. I uh, not just, you know, from an individual perspective, from a collective uh, perspective, I, I appreciated her, but I thought that was uh, just really great commentary when she was talking about the affirmative action bit. Tim wise, interestingly enough, the in- infamous Timothy wise, he has an article that breaks that down in great detail that we talked about when he was a guest on our program in 2007 about that affirmative action thing where he says the same, and he, br- he says exactly what I'm saying. Great illustration of white women above and beyond anything else. They, he said the same point, which cannot be said enough. White women far and away, the dominant beneficiaries of affirmative action. So what? We're not supporting it. Forget it. It maybe helps the niggers or just the white collective right now has decided that that's not what we're doing. So even though this is something that has been personally beneficial to me or to us white women as a collective we're going with our racial interest Uh, i think a lot of times we get confused into thinking that white women uh that they're at war with white men and they're all about their sexism agenda what have you i think just a lot of times in general we get confused into thinking that white people have greater conflicts with each other than they really do they will fuss and fight and even kill each other do not ever think that that means that there is some sort of disruption or divestment from them being committed to dominating black people. That's what I think. That's why I think that that continues to, to happen, even being surprised about that sort of behavior happening from white women, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's, that's, it makes a lot of sense. And it's very interesting. Uh, very interesting. I think people need, you know, what I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think about, like, nobody talks like, 
counter race like like when you hear when you listen to the cows and stuff like that, you don't hear people just in general conversation with each other and, and whatnot. They don't talk like um, what you hear on the cows. You know, even from the even from the callers. Um, do you think that there's possibly some type of uh, uh, what would you say like there's some like limitation? I don't know. What, I don't know the word to use, but I'm saying like, do you think that there's some kind of a problem with um, the fact that it seems like the people, you know, like yourself, counter racist and Nilly Fuller, um, speak in a way that absolutely like 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 nobody even even talks like that, like it's like we, we're speaking a totally different language. Um what do you what do you what do you what do you think about that, the implications of that and uh the message that we're trying to uh get across. Uh right now just I think racists or it's not even I think logic and evidence uh suggests overwhelmingly racists have done a very good job of controlling uh, number one, they recognize the importance of language and words uh, and how we articulate this problem. They understand that the verbal technology of our conquest, uh, i.e. Kwe'i Arma's brilliant phrasing, uh, they understand that. And so they invest a lot of time. Timothy Wise and <laughs> white privilege, Dr. Peggy McIntosh, they understand the importance of language. These are your tools. These are your weapons in some instances. So Hey, if we can use terms like white privilege, if we can use terms like microaggression, if we can use terms that obfuscate, uh, where we're, we're not even saying white supremacy anymore. We're saying everything else but that bigotry and prejudice and racial animus and racially insensitive. They have all these other terms uh, where we're not getting directly to what it is. They understand that that is massive when you're not when you're using terms that incorrectly convey the concepts and the problem that you're trying to solve. I, I admit it, I think that was something that was broached in the program. I agree that, that is going to make it very difficult for you to solving the problem. Uh, I think uh, people that I think just in general, I think a lot of victims of racism, I don't think we uh, have adequately grasped uh, the importance of words and really making an effort to uh, really be uh, definitive uh, and to invest great care in refining the words that you use to articulate racism, white supremacy that are very important. I don't think enough of us have grasped that uh, and thought about the way that just the terms that you use, they shape your arguments and how you think about this problem and going about trying to solve it. I think that's huge. I think there's a lot more work to be done just in, in really emphasizing that. It's not saying that you need to sound exactly like me in articulating racism, white supremacy, but it does say uh, that words are very important uh, and that we should, you know, have thought it. I think even when I asked about the definition for privilege, which I hope that's something that's not lost. Um, if you ask someone, you know, what do you mean when you say whatever the term is? Uh, I, I'm very cautious about getting an example. If you want to give an example, that's fine. But we should still get a, you know, what do you mean definition? We should still get that because it can be. Uh, very challenging, sometimes impossible to move forward with a concept if you don't have a firm definition. If I ask you, you know, what do you mean when you say car and you just point to a Volkswagen, 
that might make it difficult for me down the road if I see should see something else on four wheels, but it doesn't look like a Volkswagen. I might have difficulty uh, in applying this term moving forward. Uh, make sure you get a firm definition, but that that happens a lot uh, where people are using terms and talking about racism where they don't have definitions. People are using terms that are maybe not the most accurate terms uh, to describe this problem. Counter racism is supposed to be working against that. Obviously, we are failing, so we need to do a lot more work there. Really, just emphasizing that and why that's important and just recognizing the power of uh, just the words that are used uh, when we talk about this problem. I, I stated consistently, I, this is not white privilege. This is about power. Racism, white supremacy is about power, not privilege. That's why I did the rewind this past weekend. Desmond Cole made that exact point. A journalist uh, up in Canada on a news talk segment on CBC that, you know, we, we should not, we should move away from that way of conceptualizing this problem as privilege. This is about White power, white domination. I will uh, halt there. Uh, we had two other folks that dialed in. I'm not even sure they got to ask a question of Professor uh, Matua. Uh, the caller at 2045, and I guess the person, you might be on a vote line or something else. Did you all have uh, questions or observations you were going to make? I can hear both of you. I guess if you, uh, the caller. Oh, uh, wait. Okay. The other caller, I think you have. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Gus. Uh, greetings, uh, gr- greetings to you, Gus. Um, and that, thanks, brother, for letting me go. Um, r- real quick, I just, I just wanted to sum up what I heard from from the guest. Uh, uh, Matua, is that her name? Uh, Matua. Matua. Uh, I, I just, I very well spoken, um, very uh, uh, um, somewhat attractive to me. I, I, I seen her picture. Very, you know, uh, stand upish, uh, like dignified. She has a dignified appearance to me. That makes sense. So, and and as I said before, well spoken, very educated. Um, but I, I just listening to the conversation and listening to what she was saying, I, I disagree, um, with, with the fact that, um, I, I do agree that males do get, um, preferable treatment in, in some aspects, you know, with jobs and just, you know, just the whole history of the, uh, we're in a patriarchal society, you know, male male dominant society. But <clears throat> I, I, it just always goes back to ground zero for me, you know. If it's if, if, if there's not a lopsided amount in the population, as far as black people, uh, there's just as many males as it is uh, females. Um, it, black males die, uh, you know, at a, at a, at, a, at a higher rate incarcerated at a higher rate in a, in a society to me logically to me in a society where where we have privilege these things wouldn't be happening uh at a at such a higher rate to our counterparts to me and it, it just I, like i said ground zero i see i see more of my my counterparts my uh, black black women 
get more more uh, preferential treatment when it comes to getting stopped by the police. Um, get, uh, getting into incidents with uh, other uh, uh, authoritative figures and things like that. Um, with jobs as well, em employment. So running the household. So it just it just to me it seemed like she was she was she was speaking you know maybe what she was uh, studying or what she she thinks she knows but. Uh, putting it in practice, she was saying something about that too, bad memory. But practice, seeing it, actually seeing it and living it, it don't, it, it, it definitely, we definitely don't have any privilege as black males. And um, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, I, well, you summed it up with how you feel about that. So, um, well, as I said before, thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks for this show, always. And uh, I'll mute my for sure. Just before I get to the other caller, I'm looking at the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, there is a higher rate of black male unemployment than black uh, female unemployment across the board, uh, according to uh, their statistics for men 20 and, o uh, 20 and over in comparison to black females 20 and over. Uh, you can I can post a link. You can look for yourself. But that's for me, I just want to emphasize again, for me, that's totally irrelevant. I have no idea in my view, and I could be completely wrong whether it's, you know, I mean, I don't know if that means that black females have unearned privilege. I just don't see how any of that helps us neutralize racist man, racist woman, racist child. It just, I cannot emphasize enough. At the end of the day, the people that are most responsible for all of this are not black people, male or female. They are whites. All of this should be on them in solving this problem. And again, they can switch it around whenever they want to. Maybe today, uh, black males get more jobs. Maybe tomorrow it's black females. Maybe the next week it's neither one of you. I mean, <laughs> just I just think that makes more sense. But again, I could be in error. The uh, caller from uh, 2045, did you have commentary, question, observation? Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. How are you? Right poorly. Yes, sir. I, I agree. Um, I just had, I was, when I was listening to you, I had kind of an epiphany, so to speak. But I was hard-pressed to think of when I, you know, I listened to music very, very little um, as far as the radio stations are concerned. And um, I watched very little TV, um, you know, but the sporting events. Um, whether it's football, basketball, I mean, you know, they, the DJ, they're playing music that's, you know, basically from our genre. And um, I'm just hard-pressed to f figure out if anybody or you knows any song that a white person has sung that is um, – basically saying, you know, yeah, I'm going to have a relationship with your wife or your girl, and I'm going to send her back to you and and do this and do that. I just can't figure out any song that a white person has sung um, that implicates, that, 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 that suggests that or brags about that. And, I mean, I'm really perplexed because, I mean, I know that they control the message, but... At what point do we realize that um i mean this is this is definitely an intricate plan, and I'm just trying to figure out if anybody knows of any song that a white person has sung about the the types of things that we're we're speaking of, and I haven't seen any 
like big pop star, big white star. Who's the new star? Like the new white person that's you know killing the charts. It's all black people, and it's all. It, I, I, I'm perplexed, man. I just wanted to get your feedback on that. Now I'm moving along. Oh, okay. I don't consider myself to be an expert on music uh, or much of anything else. Um, I can say that I know that there are many whites who have made songs about all kinds of things. Unless my memory is in error. I think Eminem made a song about killing the mother of his child uh, and stuffing her uh, in a chunk. So, I mean, whites certainly have made all kinds of songs uh, talking about, you know, killing people and you know, killing their wife and, you know, if it's just debauchery in general, uh, I think they have done quite a good bit of that as well. Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, different types of the hard rock and punk rock and gore and all that. And then, yeah, I may be ignorant because, I mean, well, Eminem, I'm, I'm talking about different genres. I mean, like a country, I've never heard a country song that's saying that, you know, he's, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess. Um, I mean, I'm they certainly sure make movies. <laughs> Even if they aren't songs, they certainly have made all kind. I mean, they have made movies about you know, I'll pay you a million dollars to sleep with your wife, and then you know, joke about it uh, afterwards. They have made movies like that. So I mean, hey, I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't. I think whites have done more than their share uh, of any sort of debauchery or, you know, just vile act, making that into a song or a little ditty or a movie or a TV series or whatever the case they have, they have done quite a bit in Dexter, a serial killer where he's uh, trying to have sex with his yeah. sister. I mean, yeah. you know, they're exactly. all over the place. Uh, and this indecent proposal or something like that. It was, yeah. Indecent proposal. He has to make love to that guy's wife, or yeah. But okay, I just, I mean, it's just like that's all we talk about in our music is money and sleeping with other people's women, and I mean, it's just such a. And if you don't pre present that material, you won't get the bill. And we keep just going to the, we keep walking up to their game and wanting to play it. And at some point, we have to walk away from that game. And I, I just, I don't know. Thanks for taking my call, Gus, man. <laughs> yes, sir. If you don't understand racism, white supremacy, everything else will confuse you. Hopefully, as we get more people to have a better understanding, we can uh, make better decisions, uh, our use of time and energy. Uh, anybody else, observation or a quick question they wanted to get in before we wrap things up last minute or so? Oh, we did. Uh, one of our listeners, she did point out the word fair was used a lot on the program today. Always think that is significant as well. Very, uh, very, very good catch. I would also say as well, I think uh, that exchange would have been a little different if I was talking to a white person and they were trying to convince me about that whole conversation would have sounded different if it was a white person trying to convince me of black privilege in any way, shape, form. Um if they had started, a white person had started by saying, now I can't think of concrete examples of black male privilege, man, way, way different uh, conversation. It would have been a way uh, different exchange, but I mean that it wouldn't have sounded anything like that. Um, anybody else have a quick observation or question they need to get in before we conclude? Uh, can I be heard really quickly? Yes, sir. Good comment as well just, about the uh, allowed, the word allowed yeah. about black males in the ivory towers. <laughs> um, I just wanted to to tell the gentleman that was just on 
uh, concerning, I guess, Dr. Kevorkian coming on next Monday, that uh, Black Mirror that season. I've only watched season one, which is like three episodes. If he watches that, then he'll have enough material <laughs> to go forever. I mean, the whole thing is about just debauchery, about sex. I think the first episode, the Prime Minister of the of the United Kingdom has sex with a pig. Um, so that just says, that just starts you off. So, yeah, I guess that was my comment. Thank you. Absolutely. Really interesting series. Uh, if you check it out, even it's sci-fi, like it gets compared to the Twilight Zone frequently in the Twilight Zone. Um, I had a listener, they said they felt like they were dating themselves uh, because they said they watched the Twilight Zone. I was like, man, come to come to the 21st century. Uh, they have Netflix now. I mean, you can <laughs> just go on your computer and watch anything or your tablet or whatever and just, you know, watch series for many times. So, I mean, you can be a fan of a series that, you know, was on before you were born. But uh, case in point, the Twilight Zone, which was on before I was born. Uh, I have watched it and uh, a lot of the, well, I won't say a lot, but they did address racism uh, in the Twilight Zone uh, in more than one episode. Some pretty interesting viewing if you want to check it out. But Black Mirror gets compared to that frequently. And I'm a fan of sci-fi anyway. Just some of the technical, because it's supposed to be about technology. And this is where it's great to have Dr. Kevorkian on because I'm interested to see if he thinks that that's just a metaphor for talking about the angst that whites have that, uh, Professor Matua mentioned the angst that whites have about racism, um, but it's it's presented as an angst about technology and not in a Terminator way in a social media, you know, something that is seen as kind of benign, like just being on Facebook all the time and status updates and and that becoming more perverse. Matter of fact, they have a different episode. This is season two where this black or it's a non-white female they tell her that everyone has been programmed. And so they just walk around with their cell phones and video record people all day long. And so that's what she goes outside. And it's just the whole town The people won't talk to her. They just got their cell phones out recording. And so it's the craziest thing. And you have to, you have to watch it. it directly connected to racism in my opinion, but it just presents a lot of little tidbits like that things you wouldn't, I think it's, it's sometimes it's done in such a subtle manner. Like they, uh, they have a different episode. This is in the first season where they have a device. It's a really small implant that you can get and you can get like immediate video replay of your point of view for everything that you see. Right. So as you go out and you talk to people and hang out, it's like you have constant uh, seamless recording. That's, you know, you have a hard drive and you can replay it for yourself and watch it. Right. Just uh, it's on. It'll be just on your uh, like retina or you can link it and put it on a screen so you can like play back like last night when you were at the club or this morning when you were, I mean, it's crazy. So they have this technology. The guy goes to the airport, right? And in the screening, he says, okay, play back your last 24 hours. So to get on the plane, they have to review the last 24 hours of your life. And then he says, okay, play back the last six months and they play it back and then they let him get on the plane. And that's not even connected to the plot of the film, but just little things like that, like, at least for me, very interesting to think about that within 
the context of racism, white supremacy, and particularly techno uh, technological advances, how all of their technology just gets used to further strengthen the system of white supremacy. Can you imagine that sort of technology as a black person? <laughs> like, okay, they have this computer chip, you can get it, and you can, you know, review the last year, the last two, three years of your life. You can have it all backed up, you can replay it, you can share it, you can get this technology, but you get stopped by the police. Now, they say we're going to look at the last three years of your life and maybe we'll copy it. We'll have it stored uh, on a hard drive somewhere. We'll have total video replay of everything you did, like when you went to the bathroom, who you had sexual intercourse with. Lot, I mean, just to think about um, as it goes, but really interesting. And racism is at the is at the center of all of it. I contend it'll be interesting coming up this Monday. Nine oh nine. Anything else you want to get in before we wrap up today's broadcast or? Anything quickly? Yeah, I wanted to thank you. Oh, I did have something, but before I, yeah, I just want to quickly thank you. I feel sometimes I'll be feeling like you're putting in so much work, and then we keep you a little longer than you wanted to be on. And so I just wanted to say, man, you know, I'm about to be really busy, so I don't know if I'll be able to listen to the cows, but um, I just wanted to say, man, um, you're doing an excellent job, man. And uh, some of my observation is that um, just listening uh the the, the 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 dialogue and conversation is going to get more and more confusing and i just see that um the the the, the lack of understanding of grammar logic um is going to be a real uh problem as you know as we go along um um it's going to get more confusing so people don't people don't seem to, i don't know how to say it but um I think a, a, an intense study of of, of uh, logic, grammar um, needs to happen because um, it's not getting any easier to uh, um, it's not getting any easier to have these conversations. It's, it's only getting more convoluted and and and, 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 and illogical. So um, if we had that type of device where you can, you know, see your last six months, which which I try to do as far as journaling and stuff like that, we waste a lot of time. We waste a lot of time, and it's not helping us at all. Please believe me, man. Like one of my observations is just listening to people, man, and it's 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 it's, it's not coherent. So I just wanted to just make that point. Like, um, thank you, and I hope people bone up on, you know, their time and get their get their logic understanding down because i don't see it i don't see it i don't see people having a, a grasp of logic at all follow the logic follow the logic very important uh recommendation uh if folks listen to the archive if you uh listen in and you know want to share your thought right in or if you want to share i guess you could do it on the compensatory call line coming up this weekend as well uh feel free to do that as well for people who have opportunity to uh listen to the podcast once it has been uploaded uh you can always get the uh, archives itunes stitcher uh we're on blueberry uh we're obviously at black talk radio network you have lots of options uh, if you want to get the downloads uh, of any of the archived uh content uh, and you can always listen at Tune in radio online. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, with that, thanks for everyone tuning into the program. Again, congratulations to Dr. Curry, uh, his award uh, or 
nomination uh, for an award. I hope he gets it. Uh, great job. Keep up the scholarship. Uh, and thanks for the reference uh, for Professor uh, Matua's work. Great having her on the program. Also really appreciated her commentary on discretion. That was great, as well as her commentary about consent. I might have to make a sound clip of that for Dr. Rasayan. That's something else as well. I think that's uh, important. I hope demonstrated to say that all the time in terms of being patient and even uh, when there's not agreement amongst victims of racism, which is often, I would say pretty much every time going to be the case, because I don't know anybody that I have 100% agreement on these concepts, uh, but you can discuss it uh, in a courteous manner without being vulgar and cursing, and you know, good Sambo. And I mean, that's totally ridiculous and not helping us solve this problem at all. Just being able to have calm dialogue, you share, you listen without interrupting, you let the person share their view and think about it because none of us, you know, has solved this problem. So we all have room to think and consider uh, if we, you know, could be an error if we just made some uh, miscalculations or what have you sort of rethink. So, you know, I'll be doing that myself to rethink, make sure I'm not uh, in error uh, with some of the conclusions that I have drawn, but just courteous dialogue. Really glad we can have her on the program and uh, hope doc- if Dr. Curry listened, hope uh, his views were not uh, misrepresented or mangled. Hopefully he'll let us know uh, how the dialogue went if he checked it out. Anywho, we'll be back uh, twice Thursday. Uh, you can tune in if you are not going to work. Tune into the program. We'll be here twice. Paul Defami Grant, early program, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and late 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, workplace racism as usual. Drop us an email if you get confused, have gripes, complaints, guest suggestions. You can't find something in the archives until justice at gmail.com, until justice at gmail.com. With that, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I've stated that consistently. Uh, You never know. When today will be the day. I can't believe I forgot to. Uh, they put a billboard up in Oklahoma City. The Daniel Holtz guy that was on my mind. They put a billboard up that said uh, maybe he didn't do it. Some firm they're doing a documentary to suggest uh, that uh, there might be evidence that maybe he is innocent. The it being him being convicted of 18 various counts of sexually terrorizing exclusively black females. But that'll. We'll talk about that more as we proceed uh, this week. We certainly have been talking about that case a lot over the last two years. Anyway, uh, as I was saying, sobriety would be best. You never know when today might be the day that you are pulled over by Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, any other race soldier, badge or no. Whites are dangerous. We should keep that in mind at all times. Racism, white supremacy is war being waged against black people at all times. Our behavior should reflect that at all times. The seriousness of this problem. I don't think consuming cannabis, alcohol, cigarettes, any other narcotics. I don't think that is going to put us in the best position to successfully neutralize racism. I haven't seen any evidence to support that so far with that creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> 
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.